Support for Boston Public Radio comes from the trustees. You can ring in spring at Nomkeg in Stockbridge with the annual Daffodil and Tulip Festival. Colorful seasonal blooms April 19th through Mother's Day. Advanced tickets required. More at thetrustees.org spring. And Dandelion Energy, helping homeowners across the Northeast to lower their carbon footprints with geothermal heating and cooling systems. More information at dandelionenergy.com. Ahead on Boston Public Radio, live from our GBH studio at the Boston Public Library, last night's second Democratic presidential debate, sparks were flying as a new generation and the old fought over the torch. Kamala Harris burned Biden on busing, and Marianne Williamson emerged as a love-fueled voice of the Democratic Party. We kick off the show taking your calls on the debate. Who stood out? Who should drop out? Did Biden just blow his momentum, Or do we underestimate the endurance of the aged white male? From there, we get Emily Rooney's take on the debate. And at noon, Police Commissioner Willie Gross is here to mark his first anniversary as Boston's top cop. I'm Shirley Leung, in for Marjorie Egan. The city of Boston has given straight pride the all clear. We'll talk to Sue O'Connell about this and how gay pride is being commodified and Trump's G20 joshing about the Russian election meddling. That and more is next on Boston Public Radio, live from our GBH studio at the Boston Public Library. Welcome to Boston Public Radio. We're broadcasting live from our GBH studio at the Boston Public Library. I am Jim Browdy. Marjorie has the day off. In her place is the business columnist for the Boston Globe. That'd be Shirley Leung. How are you, Shirley? Hi, Jim. Great day to have you here. Last week, Donald Trump told Chuck Todd that he'd really like to run against sleepy Joe Biden. But off last night's debate, will Trump's 2020 dreams come true? Biden was more seething than sleepy as he went after Kamala Harris, schooled the up-and-comers on his years and years and years and years and years of legislative and executive experience, and he ran out the clock except when his train of thought would go off the rails. I'm the guy that extended the Voting Rights Act for 25 years. We got to the place where we got 98 out of 98 votes in the United States Senate doing it. I've also argued very strongly that we, in fact, deal with the notion of denying people access to the ballot box. I agree that everybody, once they, in fact, they anyway, my time's up. I'm sorry. Is his time up in more ways than one? We're taking your calls and asking you, did Biden self-destruct? Did Kamala Harris take the torch from him? Our number is 877-301-8970. What did you make of last night's debate? Shirley Young, what did you make of last night's debate? Uh, uh, first of all, I, I fell asleep. Is that really true? <laughs> it, 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 around the 1030 mark. Um, and uh, not because so it was boring. That. <laughs> not because it's boring, because I, I'm, I go to bed pretty early, like well, 9 o'clock. <laughs> you were admitting that. I wasn't going to admit this. I didn't fall asleep in the middle of the debate. But for other reasons, this is really embarrassing, but you brought it up. I took a nap at 7.45 till 8.55, so I'd be prepared to stay up till 11 o'clock, and I did make it through the uh, whole thing. What do you think of the Biden uh, thing? That Kamala Harris-Biden thing was as dramatic a back and forth as I've seen in a presidential debate in quite a while. Yeah, last night was the, the much, much more inver- interesting, much more riveting oh, was, of uh, debate of, of the two nights. And, uh, you know, Biden, Biden looked terrible. Um, and and Kamala's stars rising, and so 
you know, I had a lot of expectations for her coming in. A lot of people did. And then she kind of disappeared, got lost. I and agree with that. it was great to see her uh, seem presidential last night. You know, there was a, you pointed out to me this morning before the show, I had missed Michelle Goldberg's piece in the New York Times. And she had followed Biden earlier in the week to a couple of events. And she wrote a line that was so prescient, talking about him on the campaign trail. Seeing Biden on the stump, she wrote, often feels like watching an actor who can't quite remember his lines. Even if you don't support him, it's hard not to feel anxious on his behalf. It wasn't just the losing end of that exchange about busing. It was on two occasions he did that, oh, my time is up. And he didn't do it to be respectful. It appeared to me like he had lost his train of thought. He didn't know what to say. Here's just a little piece, by the way. This went on and on. We don't have time for the whole thing. And we assume most of you have seen it. Here's a little bit of uh, Kamala Harris, senator from California, pushing Vice President Biden on his first, his relationship with segregationist legislators, citing her own experience being bused to school and criticizing him for his position against federal busing. Here it is. Well, there I did was not a oppose. failure of, of states to, to integrate no, public schools in America. I was part of the, the second class to integrate Berkeley, the, California public schools almost two decades after Brown v. Board of Education. Because your city council made that decision. It was a so local decision. So that's where the federal government must step now, in. That's why we have the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act. That's why we need to pass the Equality Act. That's why we need to pass the ERA, because that, there are moments in history where states fail to preserve the civil rights of all people. You know, I'll be the first to admit that I'm a tad hyperbolic at times. Having said that, I, I think the Biden campaign ended last night. I think there were questions about his age. There were questions about whether or not he was living in the past rather than looking to the future. And I think that exchange, and even if people don't watch a debate, I don't know what the numbers are yet, 15 plus million watched the first one. I assume more watched last night because more of the front runners were there. He, it was so clear uh, uh, that he was not ready for prime time despite his storied career. I don't see how he survives last night, but we'll see what people think. 877-301-8970. I think what struck me was that uh, it was almost like he watched Wednesday's night's debate and said, you know, everyone is playing nice. So nice, yeah. And so, and he comes out Thursday. He, he was unprepared. You know, you, you look at, you knew this question about race was going to come up. Of course. If you're Biden, you were just grilled. You were, you were uh, the week before about defending segregationist legislators. And he, he did not defend himself well. He did not prepare. I mean, he had to say time's up because he lost his train of thought. Uh, and I also think that being vice president for eight years, he's not used to people publicly criticizing mm -hmm. him. It was almost like I'm so used to b being revered. And, uh, and 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 uh, this was a really bad showing. But as you know, I, I don't, um, you know, white men, <laughs> powerful about, white men have a have a way of, uh, you know, coming back from the dead. You know, I, so I'm, so I'm so not counting them out up. yet. I wanted to congratulate you, and I had forgotten because you wrote a piece the other day. The two finalists for a Massport job were a, a white guy and a woman. And you were uh, you wrote something like uh, musical chairs for white guys are over, and you could also I would argue you could apply the same line to last night by the way. Yes. And I want to congratulate you. You probably wouldn't say it. I would argue that you may have had some impact on the outcome. I'm sure the woman who got the job was wildly qualified on her own. Yeah, Lisa Wieland. Yes. But I would guess that it didn't hurt uh, that you made the point that at the end of the day, it is true that white guys t seem to get all the big jobs in Boston. And in this case, she did not. 
And, and white guys not. get it because they have very powerful connections. Uh, this is Brian Golden, who is the current uh, planning and development city, chief right? of the city of Boston, and he's very well connected, a former state rep. And uh, I'm glad that Lisa uh, got the job. Uh, she, I think she was the best candidate. And the only thing that would bring her down, she has a great track record at the port, uh, she's the port, current port director, yeah. uh, is that um, uh, it was, would, would have been the, the old boys network kicking in favor. Of, uh, of Golden. So I'm By the way, glad. for those who are not at the library, uh, Shirley is smirking at me as she talks about the old uh, white guys uh, uh, network. You know, one last observation before we get to the call, Shirley. Every time I watch a debate, I try and I forget often, but I didn't forget last night, particularly after Biden is getting pummeled. If you turned on the television and didn't have any idea who the players were, you didn't know who was leading in the polls, who was not leading in the polls, you would have watched last night, and if someone said to you at the end of two hours, that guy standing in the middle is the guy who's crushing everybody, at least, yeah. you would be incredulous. You'd right. say, no, that's not possible. And I, again, I know that much, most of America didn't watch it, but they're going to see the clips replayed ad nauseum today. Uh, Arjun, one of our colleagues, just typed on our screen, not surprisingly, Kamala Harris is the most searched name on Google of all the candidates after last night's debate. And you know what, you know what the other thing is? It may have, in some ways, unfortunately for her, diminished the performance of Elizabeth Warren the night before. I thought Warren was good. I didn't think she was, uh, you know, fabulous. She was good. It was tough because they were mostly also Rens. But Harris's performance was so extraordinary last night that, in many ways, it diminishes everything that came before, uh, you know? It's, it's almost like Elizabeth who? Like, yeah. it, it, nobody... It was too bad that Warren did what... did. She was at the kitty table. Yeah, it was not with the, the big boys night. and girls. I and, agree. And I so agree. it would have been much better to see her Thursday night. And I think she would have gone more toe-to-toe -to -toe with uh, Kamala Harris. Let's go to Andy in Boston. You're first on Boston Public Radio with me, Jim Browdy, and Shirley Young sitting in for Marjorie. Hi, Andy. Hi. How you doing? Great. Can you hear me? Yeah, yeah, we can. Take it away. Oh, uh, I just wanted to say that Bernie Sanders, he didn't get enough time for one. But Biden, I don't believe he's a front runner. Even if he is, I don't see him winning, especially after last night's debate. Kamala Harris, I never liked her. I don't think she has a shot. I think that's an instant Trump. Um, whoa, whoa, whoa. But wait, 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 instead of just you never liked her, which you're entitled to... You never liked her because? Because she's just Hillary 2.0. I mean, Otherwise, because she has breasts, I assume. She's a woman, is that why? No, no, no. W no why I is that? Hey, I, I like Tilly. I like Tilly, but I, I think you've got to cut down all these candidates. First, get rid of the first. first uh, Can I tell you something, Andy, with all due respect? If you were to ask me from the first two nights, if I had to pick the least Hillary-like candidate on the stage, I would say it'd be Kamala Harris. I mean, she was on fire. You may not like what she said or what she did. Uh, I think uh, you're selling her short. I have no idea what her prospects are. I just think it was, frankly, her night. Andy, thank you very much for the uh, call. 877-301-8970. You know, Mitch McConnell was probably mentioned more in the two debates yes. than Donald Trump was. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's really amazing. What did you think of Sandra's performance last night? Obviously, he came in as the guy sort of tied for number two with Elizabeth Warren. 
I knew he was old. He's really old. Why? What'd you say? <laughs> and and he was angry. He was so angry. But that's his shtick. That's I know, who he but is. It, it didn't. I, I don't know. It didn't appeal to me. And I mean, I guess I felt like I've seen this show before. Mm-hmm. And and in and, and here you have uh, an angry old white man. <laughs> <laughs> Seems to be a recurring theme in terms of next Shirley to Leonard. another angry old white man, yeah. uh, Joe Biden. Right? They were next to each other, and so uh, I, I don't know. I think he he's lost his step too. I mean, actually, last night was really interesting because you know you have Biden and Sanders are supposed to be among the front runners, and I think now you got to say that you know they're they're going to take a step back. They're, they took a hit, they took some hits last night. I mean, I'm not counting them out, but they definitely took some hits last night. Let's go to Gardner where John's on the phone. John, you're on with Shirley Young and me, Jim Browdy. Hey, John. Hey, Shirley. Hey, Jim. How y'all doing? Excellent. Hi. Hey, I got an overarching thing real quick, Jim, if you got time, but I, yeah. Bernie looked old. I'm going to take the heat off your ageism, Jim. Mm-hmm. I am Bernie an ageist. I admit it, but go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Bernie looked old and Biden looked old. <laughs> He looked horrible. Horrible, I agree. I, I, I'm sorry to say it. He's a good man and everything, and I've been kind of in that corner because I'm a left-center, older guy, white guy myself. Mm-hmm. Um, Kamala, Raleigh, I agree with everybody. I thought Kirsten Gillibrand, who I've been disappointed in her whole campaign, stayed in that mode, in my opinion, and didn't, didn't do well or mm-hmm. look well. I thought Mayor Pete was okay. You know who I'd like to hear a lot more from, and we never will, is Andrew Wang. There's something about him i'd like to hear his explanation beyond the thousand dollars a month so forth but just technology he seems i don't know from my gut level that he's got a handle on things and and the technology that's coming in a way that nobody's even addressing let alone and if i made the well let's stay with him for a second you ever thought about him there yeah i actually uh was at an event with him you were last summer uh you know because i I'd like to write about Asian American uh, community, and yeah, okay. Andrew Yang is, uh, I believe he's Chinese, he's one of the first um, Asian American, I, I think, candidates of a major party to run for president in like half a century, and so, uh, and his whole platform is actually very compelling, that the robots will take your, are taking our jobs, have taken yep. our jobs, um, and America, American workers need to prepare, and so that's why he has this freedom dividend idea, which is to give every American over 18 $1,000 a month, and you use that money to retrain, relocate, uh, pay your bills during this transition. And I hope that idea resonates. I mean, I don't think he, he doesn't have a chance, but I, I, it was too bad last night he, he couldn't push that idea further, because I think that's a real concern, whoever is, gets elected or re-elected president. What's your final thought, John? I haven't heard Bernie or anybody else fully state the case of why the increase in taxes is going to be offset by the, the lack of what you're going to pay at the doctor's office and so forth. They, he casually or, or briefly mentions it, it seems to me, but he doesn't really make, paint the picture that I think socialism, his view... Well, here's the, by the way, I don't know if they've done a good job explaining it, but the notion behind it, I'm not advocating for or against, is you currently pay a premium and you pay co-pays and you pay deductibles, and they contend because the administrative costs of things like Medicare are far below what they are for private insurance, the total bill comes down, and as a result, when you end up paying higher taxes, that will be less than what you currently paid in total for your private insurance. Again, there are a lot of doubters about that, but that's 
the contention. John, thanks for the call. By the way, John said he wasn't crazy about, I think he said about Buttigieg, he did okay. I thought Buttigieg's honest answer to the question about the uh, shooting, the yeah. killing of a, a black guy in South Bend by a white cop, I thought was really honest and you never hear it. Here he is responding to Rachel Maddow's question. I have to face the fact and nothing that I say will bring him back. This is an issue that is facing our community and so many communities around the country. And until we move policing out from the shadow of systemic racism, whatever this particular incident teaches us, we will be left with the bigger problem of the fact that there's a wall of mistrust put up one racist act at a time, not just from what's happened in the past, but from what's happening around the country in the present. It threatens the well-being of every community. By the way, my apologies, the most important line we didn't include there was his opening line where he just looked at Rachel Maddow and he said, I didn't get the job done. You know, why did this happen? I didn't get the job done. And for a, a politician running for the highest office in the country to admit that he or she failed without any BS, but just saying it directly, to me, is really epic. You know, and, and you contrast um, Mayor Pete's uh, response to Biden, who, who dug in and, and, and couldn't even admit, you know, about um, perhaps he was wrong on busing and uh, in the way that the country handled it. And well, also, Buttigieg was coherent and clear yeah. thinking. I, I don't, you know, I, be, I don't be, mean to be harsh. I think Joe Biden has done a lot of wonderful things. I think uh, we'll play a little sound from Eric Swalwell in a few minutes talking about passing the torch, but I think it's clear that the torch is passing, at least to me. We've got to take a break. All right, great. We're talking about last night's debate. The conversation continues on 89.7 WGBH Boston Public Radio, live from our GBH studio at Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. I'm Jim Browdy. Shirley Leung from The Globe is sitting in for Marjorie Egan. Today we're live from our GBH studio at the Boston Public Library. And if you're just tuning in, we're talking about, obviously, last night's second of two debates in round one. We're taking your calls at 877-301-8970. I thought Eric Swalwell, who's a young congressperson from California, was wildly unimpressive last night. But he did have one moment that may be remembered. He invoked a phrase he said he learned when then-Senator Joe Biden, when Swalwell, I think, said he was six, uh, asked about passing the torch when he came to speak at his school. Here's Swalwell. I was six years old when a presidential candidate came to the California Democratic Convention and said, it's time to pass the torch to a new generation of Americans. That candidate was then-Senator Joe Biden. If we're going to solve the issues of climate chaos, pass the torch. If we're going to solve the issue of student loan debt, pass the torch. If we're going to end gun violence for families who are fearful of sending their kids to school, Pass the torch. Vice President, would you like to sing a torch I song? Would. <laughs> I'm still holding on to that torch. For a while. 877-301-8970 is our number. Yeah, let's, go he let's hear from Stephen from Brookline. Hi, Stephen. Hi, how are you? Excellent. Good. So, Jim, you took my point in your last little segment. I feel the exact same way. Uh, I think that Biden, I can't tell if he's the best candidate or not. But he missed his he missed his one chance he missed a chance to redeem himself by saying I'm sorry when when Senator Harris looked at him and and, um, and talked about the busting and how it personally affected her. Had he done that, he'd take ownership for the pain of that um, of that episode in American history. 
I think he would have done a lot to redeem himself. And he actually showed himself, unfortunately, a little bit like other older white men like Trump who can't take responsibility for their actions, as opposed to Buttigieg, who, as you said, the first thing he said is, I failed, which, um, as my friend Huda Merskeech said, is a great sign of leadership. That's a great point. It means point. that somebody who actually can, uh, can see what they have to do to actually repair that. Yeah. Beautifully put. Stephen, that was excellent. Thanks. You know, uh, I wonder what's going to happen today. You know, Biden has, uh, you know, a, a track record of, you know, facing incredible criticism and then backtracking. So uh, I guess we'll see I if mean, like Hyde Amendment. Kind right, of Hyde Amendment, exactly. I'll, I wonder if he's going to uh, apologize. I mean, he, he didn't do so well with Anita Hill, right? He tried. Well, he's a, no, no, he didn't at all. He's <laughs> he, also the Jesse Jackson push coalition thing that I talk about timing. Right. And on that issue, the one place I wouldn't disagree with Stephen, but I, I'd go further. Well, I think it would have been great, and you said this too, if uh, Shirley, if he had owned up to his mistakes in the past. I think people find that really compelling and yeah. connecting. Having said that, I don't think that was his only bad moment last night. I think he was slow off the mark. I, I, as I say, I think the two times that he said, my time is up, as you said to me this morning, what candidate in the history of debates has ever stopped him or herself <laughs> exactly. in the middle of a thought? I think he either lost his train of thought or he didn't. I, I don't, in any case, I, I, don't, I, I think it was a very poor performance, and I think it'll be noted. In any case, 877-301-8970. By the way, the next debates, if you're wondering, are on CNN, I think July 30th and 31st, but they're at the end of uh, July. Why don't you take the next one there, uh, Shirley? All right, let's hear from uh, Ken from Rhode Island. Hi, Ken. Hi, how are you? Excellent. Um, I didn't watch either of the debates, because mm -hmm. to me, it doesn't make any difference what any of the candidates say, because mm -hmm. the one issue, in my opinion, is the rise of fascism in our government, and no one is talking about that. Well, actually, I think the and, word might have been used by Bernie Sanders. That One of them, I believe, used the word fascism, but a number of them talked about what they considered to be the horror of the Trump uh, president. By the way, Biden mentioned that too. I don't know if they used the word you want used, but I think that was pretty much... But don't you want to know, if you think this president, to use your word, is a fascist, don't you want to get a sense of who you think can retire the fascist, or, or you don't care? No, I, well, I do care. But the fascists control our government right now. Uh -huh. I mean, you, you see it in the White House... That entire administration, you see it leading the Senate, who is, who's appointing judges. You know, they're putting judges, uh, uh, installing judges in, in our system. And you're, you're kind of seeing it in the Supreme Court right now. That, to me, our, to me, our, our Constitution is under attack. So what do you that. plan on doing about it? Um, I'm going to vote for somebody who's not Trump, obviously. <laughs> Well, you might want to help determine who the somebody is. That's, I mean, I, that's why I watch. I want to know who it is that I think will be the next great leader or, of our country. So I hear you, and I, there are a lot of people who are frustrated like you, but I, I think uh, stepping out of it is not the way to deal with frustration. But, Ken, thank you very much for your, uh, for, uh, your call. Was there anybody else, by the way, before we go ahead, we haven't mentioned like at least half the people on the... Say, does anybody else who either did anything for you or, or totally disqualified themselves? Marianne Williamson was a bit odd. I had her she on was Greater Boston. She was entertaining. She, and by the way, she's really smart, <laughs> yes, and she, she is a great public speaker. She was a little bit 
I mean, the notion that all their plans don't matter or what, you know, what matters is slow. Mm -hmm. I, I didn't really know where she was going with that. And the love thing was a little odd. Yes. At the, uh, uh, at, uh, she, but she qualified, and yeah. I don't know if she'll qualify for the next round. By the way, there is another round. I think it's Bullock, who's the governor of Montana, who has already qualified for oh, the for CNN July. debates, for, which means that at least one person is going to oh, get bumped because they're only 20. I don't know what the rules are, but they're, the thresholds are a little bit higher. So we're going to do this again? We're going to do candidates? two nights on CNN on, again, either the 30th and 31st. There's some two nights later in, uh, yes, this, until it's uh, winnowed down, it will, uh, will not happen, I, uh, I was trying to say. I mean, you guys must have talked about these yesterday, but I, I can't, these 10 candidate formats, it's too many people. It is too much. I mean, you're, frankly, if I, were to do, if I were in charge, which luckily for them I am not, it's almost impossible doing a multi-candidate thing. I did a Senate debate years ago where uh, I think it might, was it Warren? I'm not even sure. I don't even remember which. No, it was when, I think it was when uh, Martha Coakley ended up getting the nomination and obviously Scott Brown ended up uh, uh, beating her. And there were five candidates and that was too much because by the wow. time one of them responded right. to the first one, you forgot what the first one right. said. What I would have done is, which would have been probably ensure that nobody was watching, they should have been broken up into three groups or maybe even four, four groups. Four groups, yeah, four groups of uh, five. And, but again, will people watch four separate things? I don't know what the answer to that is. I mean, I, I like the... I, I hadn't seen this before in previous debates, but they uh, all the, the, the outlets, including the Globe, yeah. we were saying how many minutes... Yeah, I love that. I love, I love that. that. How many minutes per segment? One did how many words, which oh, is really, really that's great. Oh, really? That's really good. Because I guess it's not just minutes, but how fast you talk. Well, some who was at the top? Was it Biden at the top? I think was Biden was the first. Was number uh, one last night. Yeah, yeah. Biden and, uh, and and the other night it was uh, Cory Booker. Do you know there was almost 30 minutes till Williamson spoke? And while some people wow. may say that's fair because she's at the bottom of the polling uh, uh, pyramid uh, of the uh, top 10, well, she satisfied the criteria for the debate. If you satisfy the criteria and you, uh, NBC, or the, I guess the Democratic Party said it, then you should be included. In any case, let's go up to New Hampshire. First primary state, Bob, you're on Boston Public Radio. Thank you for calling. Hi. Uh, hi. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. Um, my issue sort of runs parallel to what you were just talking about. Sure. My issues, ever since the Trump-Hillary uh, debates, has been that they allow some candidates to, to interrupt others, and they allow some candidates just to speak beyond the amount of time they're supposed to speak. I agree with that. So yeah. I think that there should be a limit that is enforced by having a microphone switch. Everybody has a microphone switch that is switched off until it's their turn to speak. Well, that's, I guess, a possibility. It's just really, it's like herding cats when you have this many people. If there were a more finite, well, it is finite. If there were a smaller number of people, I might agree with you, Bob, but it's really hard. And it also shows your skill. I was mentioning to Shirley, you know, while, while everybody was looking for an opportunity, not everybody, most of those people were looking for an opportunity to get an extra word in and interrupting or raising their hand, the one person who silenced all the others when they were all trying is when uh, uh, Kamala Harris used that prepared line this is not a food fight. This is about putting food on the table. Obviously, she prepared that. 
but she delivered it so powerfully that everybody shut up and let her talk. But I, Bob, a lot of people share the frustration that uh, I think you have. Thanks for the call. And also what I noticed, uh, you know, the, the, when the camera panned in, you know, the, the, a tight shot on someone talking, yeah. but when they step back, do you see people raising, raising their, their hands? hands like little like, kids. Like, like, but what do you do? I mean, you want to get as much airtime and you want to comment on something that matters. Like, what do you do? All right. I want to hear from um, Elaine from Auburn, and she might be the first woman. Well, hello, Elaine. <laughs> We're glad you're here. Hi. Elaine, Elaine, speak. Oh, maybe she's not there. Elaine, you with us? Well, let Lisa in the car Let's be Lisa. the first yeah, woman. Lisa, yes. Hi, Lisa. <laughs> Welcome to the conversation. Lisa, hi. Hi. How are you? Great. Yes. Um, I'm very excited to be on. I, uh, this is my first time on. Thank and you. I am very connected to this uh, campaign. And yes, I am the first woman that you're listening to calling in. Great. And I made a point to say that on the phone. Oh, good. I think Kamala Harris. Uh, came out like a bulldog last night, and she's ready to go toe-to-toe with Trump, and she needs to take credit for that. She needs the credit for that. Uh, Biden and uh, Bernie Sanders were totally um, asleep at the wheel last night. They Several times they asked the questions to be repeated, which no one is talking about. And I think uh, Buttigieg came in second place, and he showed very well. Uh, he was very thoughtful in his statements and very composed. But I don't think he can go up against Trump. It's about who can win against Trump and and take us to that next generation of leaders and be a leader. And I think Kamala Harris has all of it. Lisa, before last night's debate, um, what were your impressions of Kamala? Did you have another candidate in mind or were you already behind her? Well, I was um, I've always been a Bernie fan. I went to see him on my birthday back in 2016, wow. right after we lost the election. Uh, Hillary lost the election. I watched Kamala Harris at a town hall with um, on CNN. I don't know if um, Anderson Cooper uh, had interviewed her or not, but she was very compelling. And I have a 22-year-old son, and he has backed her ever since that night we watched her in the town hall. Oh, wow. It's time for a woman to lead this country. It's time for a different perspective. And it's a different perspective than the old white boy network that's been in there all along. Lisa, and do you I want know, to write uh, Shirley's next column? Because I think you just did. <laughs> hey, Lisa, are, do you live, are you in Massachusetts? Are you, where, where are you calling from? Yes, I am. So what do you I think about um, Senator Warren? Senator Warren, we watched both debates, my family, the entire thing, both once. But we were looking forward to it for months. Um, she was good, but she uh, she has plans, but she does not have charisma in my eyes. Um, and I, I give her all the credit. She's come a long way. She has a lot of perspective. She has a lot of meat to her plans. But she she I don't know if she can go against Trump. And. From what I know right now, it's the skeletons in the closet that really make a difference. And I don't know what's in Kamala's closet, but Elizabeth Warren's going to have a hard time going against Trump. Lisa, Lisa, Donald Trump. Donald Trump has 500 closets. I don't think, you know, (laughs) 
in any case, and Lisa, we're, still we're really glad them, you got right? through. Thank you very much for the call. Anyways, uh, we're actually going to talk about one with Emily. Exactly. In a of so coming up is Emily Rooney. She's here with her take on the Democrats' debate blowout. She's next on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio, broadcasting live from our GBH studio at the Boston Public Library. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. I'm Jim Browdy, Shirley Leon, sitting in for Marjorie. We are live from our GBH studio at the Boston Public Library. And joining us for a list of fixations and fulminations and much more is Emily Rooney, host of Beat the Press, which you can catch tonight at 7 o'clock. Hello, Emily. Jim, good to see you. Good to see you, Shirley. Hi, Emily. Hey, so we've been uh, talking <laughs> about the debates and uh, with our listeners. And so what, what's your take on last night's debate? I'm going to go with, I'm going to steal this from Joe Scarborough. It was a disaster. For whom? For the Democrats, because none of them talked about Donald Trump. You know, they're on issues that, you know, just aren't going to resonate with American, their positions on immigration, a discussion about busing. It's like, oh, my God. Yeah, but isn't the the goal is to get the nomination? This is, with all due respect to former Congressman Scarborough, it is June of 2016. You have plenty of time to re-steer your vote. That's what he also said. Let's just just hope nobody was watching. (laughs) Well, I see, I don't agree. But Bernie went after, come on, Bernie went after Trump, called him a racist. Yeah, he did. But it, he was—he was the only one. There, Trump should be the focus of every single one of these discussions. What he's done, what he hasn't done, the, his behavior—nobody brought it up. Yeah, but the problem with that strategically is if you focus all your attention at this stage on Donald Trump, and I understand the frustration. I mean, Scarborough, by the way, in my estimation, and this may be unfair, is a bit of a fraud. This no, is I, a guy I don't mean to, who was hanging out with Donald Trump same, on New Year's know, Eve at Mar-a-Lago, and all of a sudden, I just had the same reaction. No, but, 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 but wait because a second. of the subject if you, matter, if all your guns, so busing? to speak, I hate that expression. If all your criticism <laughs> is focused on Trump, yeah. then what you end the debate with is the status quo. Everybody stays where they are, and the goal is no, to move up the chain. They didn't ma- massage him into the discussion at all. Well, that is, for they the most part, didn't. true. And th- that has to be the focus. And I, th- I really think if somebody, one of them, had really done that in a standout way and compared themselves in some way, that it would have made a difference. I would assume, knowing you as I have for so many years, <laughs> that the love candidate of the evening, Marianne Williamson, <laughs> yeah, would have no, great okay. appeal to you. Is that not true? I'm t- I was fascinated by her. Uh, I, you know, just sort of staring at her, just trying to get the whole look. What's what's going on in her mind? You know, why are you doing this? Well, you know, I had her on Greater Boston. I have to say, I yeah. and, and, and t- this is two months ago. I I'm not much in a spiritual advisor. Oh, really? To be. <laughs> and I thought, it, she and was, I am. And, but she was really smart and yeah. really impressive. I think it doesn't matter how smart and impressive. When you've never done a forum like that. And you're ignored for, I think it was 27 minutes. minutes. Yeah, yeah. It's really hard to get in the mix and to know what to do. Mm-hmm. And but how every to... time she spoke, she was mesmerizing. Yeah, she was, I, she, I agree. She held everybody's attention. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, the, you know, in some ways, like Kamala Harris last mm-hmm. night. And so, but, but yeah, she came across a little kooky, though. But wait a second. I'm not going <laughs> to let you go. I mean, I understand the Scarborough-Rooney angle on this. <laughs> but I, I think... Last night is going to be remembered in a month or six months is the end of Joe Biden's yeah, political career. And, and I don't the, know if Kamala Harris is going to get the, the nomination, start, yeah. but she's in the top she's, tier now as a result of she last definitely night. definitely catapulted Well, that's a, big, that's a really yeah. big uh, mm. deal. But, he, but, but, but going after him on his position on busing, I mean, 
If it, it, I, you know, it's, it's to just, bring it, him I, I down. Know, I know. It was powerful. You remember it. We're talking yeah. about yeah. it. You know, and and she clearly prepared for that mm-hmm. moment to bring yeah. up race because he, yeah. she felt that she already knew that was his Achilles heel, and he was so ill prepared yeah. to answer yeah, that he, question. He appeared shocked when she said that she had been a child who took a bus. <laughs> I didn't know. By the way, I was not I aware of that before. Well, he spun his head in, yeah, to look at her. He did. She, well, I think it was just spinning anyway. In any case, <laughs> can we move I, on? He certainly r- looked good. I know he's 76 years old, but... And you think? Yeah. Those teeth are creepy. Aww. Come on. <laughs> I think he looked like he was disinterred for yes, the debate. God, yes. I'm sorry. I know this is ageist and horrible, and I'm not a kid. I think he looked like uh. glued together <laughs> for the evening. And next to Bernie, oh, yeah, right. and, and Bernie right. looked unglued together. Well, Bernie Sanders is 76 or 77, well, too. Yeah. I understand that. But that is... By the way, I hope people know, Donald Trump is the oldest president in American history, and both of these guys are four years older yeah. than he is. Yeah. Wow. Trump I mean, looks better, I agree. I, I think he does. I don't think he looks Definitely good, but obese. he looks. I yeah. think he looks uh, better. Yeah. Can we move, speaking of Donald Trump, can we move to another uh, thing? Yes. Uh, e. Jean Carroll, right. and obviously she's the one, even though she doesn't use the word, who was accused of... Uh, Donald Trump of raping her in the Bergdorf Goodman's dressing room uh, a while ago. 1996. The most significant thing is the New York, I think it was the New York Times who got in touch with uh, the two women Mm -hmm. who said she uh, spoke to contemporaneously. Both of them are pretty famous. One was a newscaster in New York City for years. I was there and Lisa Bernbach, I'm assuming most people know her from the preppy handbook, whatever. Uh, Here's a clip of Bernbach talking to the New York Times, recalling a phone call from Carol uh, shortly after the, the alleged attack where Bernbach is urging her to go to the police and Carol resists. I said, let's go to the police. No. Come to my house. No, I want to go home. Right. I'll take you to the police. No. It was 15 minutes of my life. It's over. Don't ever tell anybody. I just had to tell you. I mean, that's, it's pretty yeah. powerful stuff when incredible people have... Uh, and by the way, Martin was suggesting just mm. the opposite, saying Trump is so powerful, don't do don't it, he'll crush you, yeah. just mm. go home, that, that sort of I thing. I mean, there's, there's no question that E. Jean Carroll is quirky. She's, you know, she is she's, quirky. And she, by her own admission, she is. And, and so this whole thing about people trying to discredit her over the timing... And I think she has handled that really well, too. So do I. Oh, I, I don't have the right to, be, to take pen to paper and put it in context of, of my book, which is about hideous men. Um, and then, of course, you saw this thing about Donald Trump Jr. trying to discredit her, saying that this was an episode of law and order, that somebody was uh, accosted by somebody famous in a dressing room at Bergdorf Goodman. And she said it's a total coincidence, although much of law and order, I mean, I'm a fan of that, too, um, is based on real-life incidents. It so sh- somebody may have heard about this through the grapevine and picked but up on it. But she hadn't talked about she it. She didn't. By the way, that law and order was 2012. We have that sound that was tweeted out by this, young yeah. Trump. Yeah. Here is, uh, first you're going to hear the investigator and then the alleged suspect. Again, this is from law and order sometime in 2012. Maybe. In any case, but it does, <laughs> a, it does talk about a, a dressing room sexual assault. At, uh, at Bergdorf's, but again, it's totally undercut by the fact that Birnbaum and... Uh, uh, Birnbaum? Birnbach? Birnbaum. Birnbaum. Yeah. Uh, and Martin were called contemporaneously... Yeah. Birnbach. My apologies, which years before 
So it, yeah, so that it's was either 96. Exactly. And, and this, this is 2012. 2012. They might have heard about it through the grapevine, but it happened in 2012. I'm surprised there was so much um, uh, questioning about the timing. Yeah. Especially yeah. after Brett Kavanaugh and everybody talked about... I mean, we, we were... I feel like uh, the nation was schooled on women's memories of assault and how uh, it could take a while for, the, for, for a lot of these memories or a lot of... For, for women to... to to talk about them publicly, and so, uh, and uh, so, I, I'm. I, well, a lot know, of I'm people are just assuming it's political yeah. that she's bringing it up now. A, she wants to sell a book, and B, it's the beginning of the serious presidential season, right before the first debates. She probably hopes they'll talk about that. Right. Um, but no, I, I don't find her and, her timing but, suspicious. At right, all. And, and this allegation, Jim and I were talking about this earlier. It is. Um, it's probably one of the more most egregious of the allegations. It is, but it's very much in context, or fitting, I should say, with other things. Remember the one where he was sitting next to some On the woman? plane. No, that oh. one. And then the one he was sitting next to somebody in some Las Vegas or something like that, and he starts reaching up. Yeah, under the dress, right. yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's all the same kind of behavior, you know? But does it, and the question, even though, you know, it's sort of interesting. I think we discussed with you last week, I'm not sure, or maybe in the newsroom, that the uh, editor of the New York Times, I think, has really distinguished himself a la Buttigieg last night by acknowledging he screwed up in the initial coverage. I thought that was great, yeah. And uh, Dean Bacay, who really, I, yeah. you know, again, anytime anyone's willing to admit a mistake, mm-hmm. honestly, to me, is huge. Their coverage since, including this, has been spectacular. But does it? Does anybody see? I mean, we were doing a story about this on Beat the Press, saying not to ruin my tease, but originally nobody picked it up. It was New York Magazine, but I could understand that. You're not just yeah. going to reprint something. Certainly, the New York Times isn't going to do that. Other newspapers, other news outlets might do it, but they got their own research together. They interviewed those people. Mm-hmm. They got the story. And that was front page today mm-hmm. with, the, with the photograph. So you think they were not remiss in the slowness with which they uh, moved? Well, the, was it really I mean, that slow? It was a week, I guess. It was a little well, bit slow. And, and, and again, I think pretty credible. And the issue on all these things is there's something like this, which I would argue is more credible by the day, particularly after hearing the voices of but Martin is it gonna and make Bernbach. A difference? Scott, yeah. I don't think it, no. is there, it Describe to me the one voter who is going to change his yeah. or her mind about Donald no, Trump. Not one person. And I can't identify what that no. person, which is a horrible statement about the state of this democracy, I would argue, in. Uh, they don't in, care. I mean, people just really don't care about what happens to women, Jim. It's, it's the truth. The, the horrible things you're allowed to say and do, and it's just like, oh, you know. Yeah, and, you, you know, the conventional wisdom was Me Too, at least the Me Too 2.0, starting with Harvey Weinstein in October of a couple of years ago, was going to change all that. But Donald Trump is unlike anything we have ever seen before. We're talking to Emily Rooney. Uh, Emily, there are a handful of photographs that mm-hmm. have changed history. I, I am of the hope, and it's probably naive, that the photograph of this Oscar Ramirez and his 23-month-old daughter Valeria that everybody has seen, the, Sal- the people from El Salvador who obviously died and we saw their pictures face down. I'm embarrassed that I hadn't thought about this until last night. I don't know if it was on CNN or I read it online. Someone talking about whether or not this is, should have even been shown or mm-hmm. shown like it was, considering there's so many other situations where people die as a result of horrible treatment or violence where we choose, the media chooses not to show. What's your take on how this was dealt with? I, when I first saw it, I was watching CNN. I'd been playing tennis, came home, turned on the TV, and it popped right on the screen, and it took me back because there was no warning. But they had been playing it for hours before I got to it. So, you know. But then I started doing some research into it the next day because there is some serious pushback on this. The National Association of Hispanic Journalists says, you know, 
the, the first way this picture got exposed was through a tweet by the Associated Press with, with no context. She mm. didn't know really what it was. And I, I think it's valid to use it. The New York Times did it, the Washington Post, the Boston Globe, everybody had it on the front page as you know, emblematic of this crisis that we're going through at the border. But the way it was originally, I can understand that it, how people would feel it was a bit insensitive. But I, I'm, Jim, I, you know me, I, I would print anything. I would show anything. You and I would televise executions. It's like, this is part of the life we are, we endorse. But you ran a newsroom, so explain to me why, and, and I am with you on 99% of this, including executions. Things. Explain to me why it is okay to show the picture of a little 23-year-old, yeah. 23-month-old girl lying face down, yeah. drowned dead under, you know, with her head yeah. under her uh, yeah. father's T-shirt, and I assume you wouldn't have shown the bodies of the 26- and 7-year-olds from Sandy Hook, would you, or would you? The five- or six-year-olds? Six- and seven-year-olds, I think. Whatever they were, the kids who were killed in Sandy Would you have shown them? Maybe. Would you? You ran the editorial page of the Boston Globe. You were a boss, They're not too, available. I might. I know, but had they been, would you have shown them? That's a good question. I don't know. Maybe the bodies without showing each of the individual faces. I mean, this is, this is an act that somebody committed that crime. It happened. Mm. Um, See, I am with you. I think the, the, the qualifier that makes it okay is hard to say, but okay is warning. I mean, notice, as you, you, were, you were talking about I mean, the criticism of the tweet, if you alert people that they're going to see something that may be mm -hmm. wildly yeah. disturbing, it, it yeah. tells a huge part of the see, story. The problem is that a lot of these things become a political discussion, including Sandy Hook. If you print the photographs then you're into a debate about gun control and you know, access to guns and all of that thing. And this picture has also been politicized because the people who say, oh, this is terrible, we're doing, the, you know, they show this. The other people say, you know, this is what happens when you try to break into our country illegally. So people are using it to bolster their own arguments. You know, about well, people on the other side are also saying this is what happens when you shut down access to asylum no, seekers no, who are entitled. No, so, that's what I'm saying. But yeah. I'm fine. By the way, I'm fine with that. I don't, I mean, if you saw bodies out of Sandy Hook and that mm -hmm. provoked a serious as opposed to a BS exactly. discussion about guns, I, I am fine with I, that. Yeah, so I think I. this photo really, I mean, it became part of the debates yes. on Wednesday night. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I think it will galvanize mm -hmm. uh, people to uh, really do something about the, the humanitarian crisis at the border. I don't and know if it will. I mean, uh, one I, of the reasons why this picture, this was a very unusual picture. I mean, you've, we stuff, see stuff all the time yeah. that comes through. It was the under the T-shirt, the little arm still around his neck. Yeah. I mean, it grabbed you oh in God. every way yeah. imaginable where if they had been three feet apart, drowned, face right. down, would, would have been a different photograph, you know? Mm -hmm. so. In any case, this is a hell of a transition. Yes, but is. we're here for <laughs> Emily's List. Incomprehensible. It's out of control. Well, how about common sense? Doesn't matter. Why not? This is the kind of thing that drives people crazy. It's your right. Doesn't matter. I have absolutely no interest. Okay, what are you doing this today? This really is a, a, a big segue here. Oh, it's hard. This is, well, <laughs> our apologies. Okay. We're giving you a warning. Well, at least it's fun. This is okay. um, fun facts to know and tell about the 4th of July. Oh, oh I love I that. I didn't know any of this stuff. Oh, that's as good. Well, yeah, we shall fun. see. All right, maybe you did. First of all, Massachusetts was the first state to recognize the 4th as a holiday. Oh, really? How, many, how long ago? Um, 18, I didn't get the date. It was it, A long time ago. <laughs> yeah, it was, it, was, it was in the eight, 
I don't know. Well, you know, I should have looked that. We were first, whenever well, it was. We were first. And okay. it was not until 1870 that Congress designated oh, really? it as a okay. federal holiday. Right? Okay. Um, Jarring. I guess I didn't really well, the, realize well, it, this. Well, did we have the revolution here? Didn't the revolution start? I believe, I believe <laughs> it had something to do with Massachusetts. <laughs> yeah, one of the suburbs had something to do with it. People always get confused about what happened on the 4th of July. Mm-hmm. Do you know what it was? I have no idea. Yeah, do you know? I always forget to. Was it Declaration of Independence signed? No. No. See, it wasn't signed. It was formally adopted, and it had been signed a couple of days earlier. So anyway, it was formally adopted as the. De- as the I would have gotten it new. wrong too. I would have said the exact and same. And yeah. the vote by the Continental Congress to separate was a few days earlier. Anyway, um, the first Independence Day celebration was July fourth, seventeen seventy-seven, in Philadelphia, and they were still in the midst of the Revolutionary War, and the citizens came together, to, you know, to you know watch this, and that was the origin, by the way of fireworks. So I didn't know that either. So the war was still going on. They bring these fireworks in to kind of like unify everybody. In 1777, I didn't realize the war sure? was still thought, going on either. I thought fireworks were invented by David Mugar. No, not, that's oh, not no. true. <laughs> oh, I didn't know. That. <laughs> but that's why they were. That's how. That's why we now use fireworks because they they did it back then. Anybody see the daytime fireworks at Encore? Were I you saw watching them on the TV. Lot? Yeah, it was odd. It was the daytime odd. is odd. odd. But in any case, go ahead. All right, keep going here with fun facts and no yes. tell about the Fourth of July. Bristol, Rhode Island, has the oldest oldest 4th of July parade in the nation, oh. known as the Military, Civic, and Firemen's Parade, founded in 1785. That is wow. unbelievable. Bristol, Rhode Bristol, Island. Bristol, Rhode Island. Yeah. All right, I thought this was fun, back to know and tell. Eight of the 56 signers of the Declaration of Independence were born in Britain. Ooh, that is a good little fact. Right? <laughs> all That's men, a really right? good one. All men? <laughs> all men. <laughs> oh, oh yes, all men. <laughs> Three of the first five presidents of the United States had what in common? Born in Britain? Oh, wait. wait no. so What's, oh, so all, all died on July 4th. Oh, really? No. Yes. Is that true? John Adams, Jeffrey, uh, Thomas, Thomas Jefferson, Jefferson and James died. Monroe. That is really? unbelievable. <laughs> that is unbelievable, That's crazy. Actually. I knew Thomas Jefferson died on July 4th. Yeah. Wow. So um, other countries like Denmark, England, Norway, Portugal, and Sweden also celebrate the 4th. They claim because it's a lot of their citizens moved to the U.S., but really the cynical version is that they want to attract tourists to come there. On the 4th? The what are the countries so yeah, what do that they celebrate? Yeah, what, what do countries? they do there? Do Denmark, they have fireworks? Fireworks. Oh. Denmark, England, Norway, Portugal, England. Sweden. Yeah. Oh, no, that's that a story. That is odd. It really is. That's a story to, to go to England to celebrate the July 4th. What, the Brit- what do they do over there? Well, they probably don't know what happened on July yeah. 4th either. That may be why they're celebrating. They cater to... All right. Uh, no, that's a good fact to know and tell. It Americans is. consume 155 million hot dogs on the fourth. Spend close to 100 million on chips. That would be my thing. And 350 million dollars on beer. Whoa! Wow. Nothing now, like a good hot now, dog, um, by the way. Now, my family also has the tradition of fresh peas and salmon on the fourth oh, really? of July. Oh, really? Why? Okay. Where does that come from? I I had to look that up. Oh, and and John and Abigail Johnson started the tradition of salmon and fresh peas on the fourth of July. I guess it's because the running of the salmon happens this time. Now with salmon's all year round, you know, farm, farm bred salmon and But all do that we have stuff. salmon in Massachusetts? We don't even have salmon Yo, here. Oh, sure, of course we, we do. do. Oh, yeah. I didn't we know. do? Oh, I absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Really? Okay. We have fresh salmon. So, yeah, absolutely. I didn't know that. <laughs> so you were supposed to start the meal with turtle soup. We've taken a pass course, on yeah, that. Of course, yeah. Of course, yeah. But fresh salmon. And then the peas come, you know, on the vine. This is the time of the year that yeah. the peas come into season. So. And uh, apparently fish stores around, around the country, especially in New England, sell 
200 to 300 pounds more salmon in the first week of July than wow. any other time of the year. I did not this know that. This is unbelievable. Yeah. Even now, because like people eat salmon year-round. I know, but still, people. I'm, I'm doing it for the 4th. Wow. Why didn't the spotlight team do this? Exactly. I mean, this, is, this is really, we have one more wait, minute. How do you, wait, how okay. do you prepare your salmon? Oh, we, put it, we, we, we get those boards, we soak yeah, them. Yeah. In oh, the, put, soak them in the lake. Grill them? Yeah, in, in, with you know the hickory yeah, right, right, over, right. Grill, over over hickory wood. Yeah. So it's got the smoky and. Right, By the right, way, right, right and they the only grill Massachusetts salmon from the Charles. <laughs> it's unbelievable that they do this. This is the so last I'm, one. I'm, I, 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 really, I just want to say that the Fourth of July is the most significant holiday for me ever. I'm not you know a big religious person. But Why? I, I don't know. I, I, I because everybody in, in the country is thinking the same thing. They're thinking about you know the founding of the country, the freedom, and I know not everybody was free then, but. And, you know, it's, we, we all dress up in these ridiculous Fourth of July costumes. Can you believe it? We all do that. <laughs> anyway, Wait, we all dress up? What about my th- whole family. What about Thanksgiving? Don't it's okay. Know? Wait a second. What do you dress up as? You know, Fourth of July kitsch. Okay. You have 30 <laughs> seconds to tell us about tonight's oh, show, we, We've already basically talked about it. E. Jean Carroll, we're doing how difficult it is to interview Trump and why uh, Chuck Todd and... Um, George Stephanopoulos had such a hard time getting a straight answer out of him. And people were criticizing them, but I'm not sure. You see the two kids from Hill TV who were standing (laughs) like this where they stiff. Uh, Emily, it's great to see you. We'll be watching tonight. Emily Rooney. Emily Rooney joins us every week. Of course, you can keep up with her Friday nights at 7 right here on WGBH2 for Beat the Press. Emily Rooney, it's great to see you. you. Happy 4th of July. Happy 4th. Coming up, Police Commissioner William Gross is here to take our questions and your calls. He's next on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio, broadcasting live from our GBH studio at the Boston Public Library. Boston Public Radio, live from our GBH studio at the Boston Public Library. At last night's debate, Pete Buttigieg addressed that a fatal police shooting that has rocked South Bend, Indiana. The officer says he shot a black man because he's being attacked with a knife, but no one knows for sure because he wasn't wearing a body cam. In a couple of minutes, Police Commissioner Willie Gross joins us to talk about how the body cameras are working out for his officers. We'll also talk about his first year on the job and be taking your calls on this month's edition of Ask the Police Commissioner. I'm Shirley Leung, in for Marjorie Egan. Sue O'Connell joins us to talk about the 2020 race and the performative wife praising of the men running for office. When candidates like Beto O'Rourke and John Delaney say their wives are their heroes, are they pandering for the female vote, or are they the model of a 21st century enlightened man? (laughs) That and more is next on BPR. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. I'm Jim Browdy. Shirley Young from the Boston Globe is sitting in for Mardrigan who has the day off. And we are live from our GBH studio at the Boston Public Library. And we are joined 
by Boston Police Commissioner Willie Gross. The commissioner is here to take our questions and yours. You can tweet the commissioner at BOS Public Radio. You can send them an email to bprwgbh.org. The preferred route is the phone, which is 877-301-8970. Commissioner, it's great to see you. Thanks for being Thank here. Thank you again for the invitation. Pleasure. To come back to your house. Of sorts. <laughs> <laughs> Commissioner Gross, uh, you're approaching your one-year anniversary uh, in July, and um, I feel like we should nope, have a cake. August 6th. August 6th? Okay, yes. sorry. Give me a <laughs> little more time. I guess counting. announcement, announcement, or, or, or a promotion, announce promotion. And yes. I feel like we should have a cake from the Newsfeed Cafe, right? Seems <laughs> it's fine with me. While we're <laughs> waiting well, for well, it. Well, look at me. You know it's fine with me. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm bummed. <laughs> Anyways, you've been on the force for uh, three decades, and um, what no. No one's ever put it like that. <laughs> three decades. Yeah. Um, and so what did you learn uh, ab- about being the top cop for one year? So what I've learned is that um, all the people that paved the way for me, both um, great, great supervisors and not so great supervisors, I, I took their experiences, combined it in my own, and with me being raised by the community, um, I think that's, that's what um, helped me. Through, the, through this entire year, not forgetting where you came from, never treat people in a bad way, and always be li- willing to look, listen, and learn um, from others around you. That's what great supervisors that I've learned from have done. They've never had big heads, that people don't work for them, they work with them, and so um, that's what I live by. So lessons learned, teachable moments, all combined to help make me who I am today. Why don't you give us the names of the three worst supervisors you've had? I should not do that. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, we'll take two. But but I bet you, (laughs) if any officers are listening, (laughs) they know who they are. (laughs) And staying on this one year or the 10 months or whatever, what's been the most rewarding part of it and what's been the toughest and maybe most unexpected part, or at least the toughest part of your first 10 plus months? So the most rewarding is we continue to build a strong relationship with the communities that we serve. And that's no joke. Um, We've seen more people come forward and help out with our programs and initiatives. Um, If you see me at a crime scene and we're giving sound bites, you'll see me thanking the community for even calling 911 and coming forward. And those are the same community um, members that are also taking part in programs and initiatives to help save the youth in our society. As well, um, what's really rewarding is is that the mayor puts up with me for number one, (laughs) but um, wow, we've been able to graduate 115 new recruits to hit the streets, and they've all been trained very well, and they work hand in hand with the community. So I guess in short, that we've been able to advance in a positive way. What's the toughest? We're going to get back to the 115 tough, recruits in a couple of Toughest is always, seconds. always, always a combination of senseless um, violence that results in death or in, our, in this opioid dependency. Um, and trust me, BPD is working collaboratively with First Justices, with Boston um, Public Health Commission, and BMC. And even some of our officers have been, have been trained as recovery coaches as well. So we're not just going in with the lens of being police only. We're going in with the lens of people who have um, overcome dependencies, and it's a struggle every day, teaching us how to identify. And also, there's many, many issues that may make you dependent, and that's um, 
you know, mental health issues, being homeless, and, and tragedy. So we address all that, too, with, with um, our partners. If you want to speak to the commissioner, the number is 877-301-8970. I'm guessing that another difficult moment was a recent police-involved shooting of this 19-year-old uh, yes. Jamil Ellerbe, is that how you pronounce it? Ellerbe. my apologies. Uh, can you describe the situation uh, to us and how you dealt with it and how it's affected you so, and that sort of thing? First off, um, you know, no officer wakes up in the morning and says, hey, I want to be involved in an officer-involved shooting where it may result in a fatality. No one wants to do that. This isn't the time of Clint Eastwood or Charles Bronson. You youngsters, Google that. <laughs> but it, 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 it was just unfortunate that that had to occur. Um, so the way we deal with it is, number one, let the public know as much as we can about that incident. We don't ever want everyone to think or anyone to think that BPD is like Ferguson or other cities that have been in the news. So you have to be transparent as much as you can, as long as it doesn't jeopardize the integrity of the investigation, and let the folks know what happened out there, what transpired from beginning to end. And um, I'd give a shout-out to the district attorney, Rachel Rollins, as well, because she works collaboratively, co collaboratively with us. The DA is in charge of any death investigation in Suffolk County. So if you don't have the cooperation of the DA, there's only certain things you can do. And said, um, she's allowed us to come forth and state, state um, the facts as we've, as we've seen them thus far. My understanding is the young man uh, apparently had a knife and refused to put it down. And is that correct or what? That is incorrect, What sir. is the correct It thing? was a firearm. Firearm. My apologies. And what, what are the circumstances that caused your officers to decide they had to shoot their uh, commissioner? In any circumstances where you have to use deadly force... Um, it's, it's always a threat assessment. If you feel as though your life may be taken or another's may be taken, and this is in training as well, then you would stop the threat. It's not to take a life, but to stop a threat. You know, uh, one of the things that uh, I found interesting, I assume most people listening, that I've heard at least one member of the community, the neighborhood, who has uh, not only confirmed what your people have said, but it said you, your people did everything they could to avoid mm -hmm. having to uh, um, shoot this man. But what occurred when uh, Shirley and I were talking about it before, does circumstances like that not make you even more supportive of body cameras uh, than you might otherwise be? Because if every account we hear from the police themselves, from the neighbors, is true, the final ultimate confirmation would be a video of the mm -hmm. incident, no? And for the record, I was the first to wear the body-worn camera for, for BPD. So uh, I'm a big fan of, of modern technology and advancement of 21st century policing. So we're well on the way to equipping Boston police and all of the Boston police officers with body-worn cameras. We've rolled out the program to Area C11 because it has over 120 ethnicities, very diversified also South Boston, Area C6, and also the gang unit. So what we're doing now is training um, the rest of our, our officers, and we will, will be rolling out um, the body-worn cameras in other districts, such as um, the South End, Jamaica Plain, downtown, uh, just to name a few. We're at but 200 now, is that correct? Yes. And, and, and we, I'm sorry, ultimately there'll be a date 
by which every member of the force will be wearing. I don't. That? I don't like to put a set date, but because there's circumstances that may arise. But that, that is the the game plan. That's definitely the game. Okay. We are definitely moving forward. The people okay. have spoken. And so these cops, they, they did not have body cameras. The, the no, cops. because the, the the officers involved were assigned to the citywide bicycle unit. As of yet, they haven't been trained. Um, to wear the body-worn cameras, but the responding and assisting officers from Area C-11 did have body-worn cameras. And so what happens here? uh, If, you know, would you ever release... So do you have video of this shooting then? No, not to my knowledge, but here's the thing. Um, You would never, ever release video by BPD Mm -hmm. because it is the investigation of the district attorney. So the district attorney is in charge of the death investigation. She and her designees handle all the evidence, the video footage, everything. They'll make the statements about that after the video has been reviewed. So they will be reviewing the footage from the body-worn cameras of the officers that responded, and she will make the determination of what can be released because paramount is you don't want to jeopardize the integrity of the investigation. You have to be fair to the police officers, the Commonwealth, and the family of um, So there is video. It's just not, but but it's up to the DA on on whether... There were officers wearing body-worn cameras, but I don't know what's on that. (laughs) So she she will be the one. I see. Because, um, again, she's in charge of that investigation. I want to ask you how that relationship is going in a minute uh, with Rachel Rollins. Better than you may ever think. Well, uh, you'll tell us that. (laughs) Jennifer Nakar, you're on Boston Public Radio with the Police Commissioner of Boston, Willie Gross. Welcome. Hi, Jim. I just wanted to ask the Commissioner about the situation that Mayor Pete is facing and additionally how he felt that Mayor Pete's answer was to the question during last night's debate. Uh, but he didn't, uh, I asked, it's funny you say that, uh, before the commissioner answers your question, he didn't, uh, he was working last night and didn't... I never get to go home. Didn't get an opportunity. But uh, you know that there was a, uh, a white cop uh, killed a black man in uh, South Bend where uh, mm-hmm. Mayor Buttigieg is there. When he was asked last night the question about uh, why he, the, there was not more diversity on the force and that sort of thing, and he said... In looking Rachel Maddow in the eyes, I just didn't get the job done. He was very direct about it. And here's a little bit more of his sure. uh, answer, talking about uh, uh, that he was visibly frustrated that the police officer involved in the shooting didn't have his body camera, talk about relevance, turned on. Here's Mayor uh, Buttigieg. My community is in anguish right now because of an officer-involved shooting, a black man, Eric Logan, killed by a white officer. I'm not allowed to take sides until the investigation comes back. The officer said he was attacked with a knife, but he didn't have his body camera on. It's a mess. So, Jennifer, your question for the commissioner was what, uh, if I may? My question was, how did he feel that Mayor Pete had handled that, and what advice would he give Mayor Pete going forward to um, stem the tide of these needless Murders. Well, you can answer the second question even without having seen the debate. What advice couple, do you give to the mayor? That's uh, it, it sounded though he was sincere and um, detailing his frustrations, and that you know an officer was issued a body-worn camera, but unfortunately it wasn't turned on, and so that will cause doubt. Also, what was paramount is that until the investigation's complete, we wouldn't call it a senseless murder; we would call it a death investigation. So. They may have witnesses or video from other places. So he did answer properly. 
um, until the investigation is complete, um, until that time, um, then, then we'll know uh, what actually transpired. For, for Boston Police Department, man, we believe that our police department should reflect every neighborhood that we serve. All God's children, no matter what you look like, where you're from, we don't play the borders game. You should be on our department because we learn from everybody's diversity and ethnicity. And we learn um, that the more people that you have on your department that look like the population that you serve, you will be able to serve in a much better way because of empathy, sympathy, care, and respect. Jennifer, thanks for the call. You mentioned that, speaking on that note, you mentioned the 115 new recruits. Yes. How'd you do on the diversity front with 115? I think we did pretty well. I'm going to have to get you the numbers because I do not want to misquote on your show. But we do have African I think we may have them, but go ahead. Yes, <laughs> we have African Americans, we have Latino, we have um, women, um, LBGTQ. Um, is represented as well. Um, so we're doing the best that we can do in our recruiting efforts. Here's what I mean by that. The Boston Police Department, we're welcoming anyone to join us as long as you meet the criteria, of course. But across the nation, um, it's, it's, it's difficult to recruit these days. There's a lot of anti-police sentiment or people just don't want to be police officers because quite frankly, um, there's a high suicide rate. Um, you're more likely to develop cancer, diabetes, high blood pressure. And people factor that in in the decision-making process and whether they want to be a police officer or not. And usually when you retire, maybe five to ten years you'll have. There's a lot of stress, a lot of stress-related um, illnesses and effects on your body. But with that being said, we make sure that we use all of our social media platforms. We use you, we use our local uh, television stations as well to say welcome aboard if you wish to come aboard the Boston Police Department, whether it's sworn or civilian, or um, the first responder family as well, emergency, Boston uh, Emergency Medical Services or the fire department. Boston is 53% people of color. There are so many biracial relationships, different relationships. Boston has changed. We should reflect the neighborhoods that we serve. And the more we educate people, that is um, our thought pattern. Hopefully more people will come and join us. Do you want me to read the numbers? Oh, sure, yeah. Numbers. Yeah, I mean, you, on diversity, you did very well. Uh, right. 115 police recruits, right? Yes. Uh, 62 white, 23 black, 26 Hispanic, 4 Asian recruits. I mean, that's almost... 50-50. Right. Right. Uh, though I have to point out, I, I went and dug through some numbers, but I don't think you did as well as with women, right? Not as many women. I no. Think, I think only about 10, maybe, in this class. Uh, and uh, tell us a little bit more, what are, you, what are you doing to try to recruit more women to, become, to join the police? Just make sure that when you're a part of the first responder family, that the message resonates from the top on down that everybody's welcome. And we're not going to play the gender game. When you're in an alley fighting or you're trying to save someone's life, it doesn't matter the gender. What matters is you have an officer beside you. So um, we welcome any and everyone. And we definitely want um, more women. I mean, I was raised, my whole household was all female. I think you're smarter than us. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. <laughs> That's a shout out to mom. <laughs> and um, 
again, our department should reflect the people that we serve. We don't just serve just the, the male population. So, so we serve um, all genders. So I mean, looking at this recruit list, I mean, it looks like you're, you're doing really well in diversity, but, but not so well in women. What, what's the difference? Um, we, can't, we can't force people. I'm telling you right now, the welcome mat is down and the invitation is there. So it's up to the individuals to decide if they want to join the BPD. Um, what's incumbent upon us is this. We have to make sure they know that we're not living in the days of yore, and if you want to join, you will be welcome to join. You know, recently we, we promoted superintendent, a deputy Baston to superintendent, and the mayor allowed for us to, to create a Bureau of Community Engagement. She's one of our best ambassadors, as she also heads a group of volunteer female officers called Women in Blue. So we're doing everything we can to let everyone know BPD is welcome, and women in blue are going out and educating people what it means to, to uh, be a police officer. Now, there was a group of lawyers who recently filed lawsuit against BPD. Nothing new. <laughs> and, uh, we're, we're actually working the streets, and they're filing, but that's and, okay. And this was about uh, releasing, seeking information on hiring and promotions at the police department. And, uh, and th- this was a, a way to get at um, uh, looking at discipline and, and termination of applicants and employees of color in the department. Why isn't the department... They had... They, they, I think they asked, you know, they first just asked for the records, but you're not releasing them. The, and they should... It seems like the argument, they should be public records. So why aren't these records being released? Why did they have to sue? So those are in a form of a foyer. So I'm not going to jump the line just to uh, answer your foyer. We get thousands of foyers. And Freedom of information requests free, for those yeah. who don't know. Yeah. Sorry. And so... And guess what? I, I won't tell you the number, but um, we're, we're, you need a lot of people in your legal department mm-hmm. to help answer these foyers. And um, I think we need more people. Really, there's thousands and thousands of foyers that come across, especially um, from colleges, from citizens, from everywhere, especially now we have body-worn cameras. So I'm not going to jump the line and say that you take precedent over anyone else that is waiting for their request to be answered. We're talking to Willie Gross. He's the commissioner of the Boston Police Department. And Carol, you are in Watertown. You're on Boston Public Radio with the commissioner. Welcome, Carol. Hi. Thanks Hi. for taking my call. Sure. Um, Good afternoon. I always ask myself, I'm back to the subject of police shootings, uh, why, uh, why is it always deadly force? And why aren't police trained, or um, maybe they are, but you never seem to hear about the shooter being disabled, even in cases where the weapon is a knife and the person is at a great distance. Why not just shoot him in the hand? <laughs> that's holding you know, you know what? I am so glad you answered, um, asked that question because everyone thinks that this is fantasy world and that you see it on TV, so it must be true that officers can wing someone at a distance of 25 yards or 50 yards. As I alluded to earlier, this is all about threat, threat perception. I mean, there's been time when officers have um, exuded great restraint, and it didn't always end in um, a deadly encounter. So it's about threat perception, and we are trained to stop the threat, um, not to try to murder anyone. It's to stop the threat. That's the training, and we are taught to shoot at the biggest part of the body, which is center mass. I tell you right now, if you'd ever care to go to a range, 
and you see a target, and you, you, you put it out, you try to shoot for a hand or a pinky toe or something, it's, it's just not possible. That's TV. What you have to think about, too, is the backdrop. What's behind the person? You're trying to shoot a hand, and you hit an innocent person? The first thing the lawyers are going to say, were you trained to do that? No, we we're trained to hit center mass because that's the biggest part of the body, and we are not trained to murder. We are trained to stop the threat. So if police shootings ended with someone just being wounded, that's fine. Um, I'm telling you, no one goes out the door wishing to uh, be involved in a shooting that will end in a fatality. It affects you for life. Carol, thank you for the call. You're not crazy about lawyers, are you? I love lawyers. No, you don't. <laughs> yes, I do. No, you don't. No. We like lawyers on your side. Nope. What? Nope, nope, nope. I tell you what. If people didn't fight for First Amendment rights and equality and justice, I wouldn't be here as the first African-American police commissioner. What I protest is this. Don't say you walked in our shoes when you did it. If I don't see you out engaging the community, if I don't see you out talking to mothers that have lost their children to senseless violence, and then I see you misquoting me and saying you speak for the people when the people don't even know who you are, and I'll close it at this. If I walk down the street and people know me and they don't know you, then how can you speak for the people? But I'm very cognizant that there are places for lawyers, and several of my best friends are lawyers. And I, I want to hear I, those names. I even consider Rasan Hall... From the a, Civil a Liberties Union. Absolutely. He was a great prosecutor. I see him out in the street, but I may not see others out in the street. So I'm just fair. You know, but, but you know, getting back to this issue, which relates to what Shirley was talking to you about, and you're, this lawyers for civil rights asking for information. Again, lawyers who are... Mm-hmm. Do you, as someone who's done what you've done forever, is it unreasonable for a layperson to believe that if you're not voluntarily complying with disclosure on something that you talk repeatedly about right. caring about, that you've got something to hide. I mean, isn't that a yeah. natural so, conclusion so that's why I for me to reach? Absolutely. And then you must have the answer. There is a list, and there's thousands. So in this, layer of, in this, in this, um, this discussion, we have to talk about fairness. So because you're uh, an organization with an acronym, or because you're a university, do you jump the line over Mr. and Mrs. Jones and say, hey, and your very organization's talking about equality and fairness, so do you get to jump the line? No. So your intention is to give them everything they're looking for, according to you, just in time? In time. Okay. Can I, before we take a break, uh, Commissioner, uh, uh, summer is arguably the most difficult time oh, yes, it is. for people uh, who do what you do for a living. How do you prepare, not just for, we can talk about July 4th if you want, how do you prepare for summer and when obviously more kids are on the street, there's greater concern about violence? How do you, how do, you do that? You prepare with the village, and I'm not trying to be corny, but the onus isn't solely on the police department. That's why I applaud Mayor Walsh and the cabinet. We met recently with clergy, community stakeholders, and the private sector to discuss um, a summer safety initiative and strategy. So that's how you prepare. Number one, find things for young folks to do. So we have um, enhancing potential, inspiring change. That's epic with the Youth Connect program and John Hancock. We have a junior police academy, a teen police academy. We have many businesses that come forward and offer internships. The Police Activities League, you get my just find jobs, 
find events, find things for our young folks to do. And also, don't forget there's a population that isn't young that also has to, to um, that we also have to address. So we have Operation Exit, which quite frankly, we identify people that are really driving the numbers, gang members, um, those driving the numbers, and we have a, a frank talk with them. Like, how long do you think you can do this? How long do you think you are going to survive? Why don't you work Explain with us? Explain what that means. Do you, uh, an officer approaches a young man or woman who uh, is in that category and has Absolutely. that conversation? Absolutely, but we don't just approach them alone. We will talk to grandmothers, fathers, mothers, probation officers, parole officers. We have violence interrupters, street workers. We have people that work at City Hall. We will go out and engage you and just say, listen, you probably won't make it in this field of being a gangbanger or your life of crime. You're going to end up in jail, maimed, or dead. Why don't you consider working with us so we can introduce you to union trade apprenticeships so we can help change your life around? Can you deliver that on that on that? Uh, the mayor offer? has delivered that promise. We've had over six classes and some up to 30 individuals, and I think we have a 4% recidivism rate. So, yes, we do have the numbers and the success stories to back it. Do you get nervous about July 4th? Always, always. Let's, let's not forget that Boston was attacked twice by terrorism, mm -hmm. right? So across the world, um, terrorists, both domestic and foreign, uh, foreign always concentrate on large-scale events and large venues. So you have to keep that in mind as a city leader or law enforcement, the protection of the people who are enjoying their liberties. So, yeah, you have to worry about crimes in the neighborhood that historically have taken place, whether it's shootings, stabbings, or whatever. And you have to worry about protecting uh, your commonwealth and your city against terrorism. It's the voice of Commissioner Willie Gross. And uh, he's here taking our questions and your calls. You're listening to 89.7 WGBH Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Uh, Shirley DeYoung sitting in for Marjorie. I'm Jim Browdy. We're live from our GVH studio at the Boston Public Library. An incredibly beautiful day. If you're just tuning in, Police Commissioner Willie Gross, kind enough to be here taking your questions and calls. You can tweet him at BOS Public Radio. Send him an email, bprw.org. Thank you. I feel, it, I feel at home. Or call him, so he says, at 877-301-8970. And by the way, if any of the supervisors he was speaking ill of before would like to call in, <laughs> we'll put them to the top of the uh, list. Uh, so, Commissioner Gross, last night in Somerville, uh, there was, um, I think there was an ordinance uh, passed by the city council uh, to um, ban the city government use of face surveillance technology. This is the banning, you know, facial, facial recognition. Yeah. yeah. And so, I was wondering, do you do, um, do you have any thoughts on that? Um, uh, I think there's a bill yes. in the legislature right now to uh, to have a ban or more, not ban, a moratorium on facial recognition software uh, in the public sector. What's your thoughts on that? So I don't think facial recognition is where it needs to be at this time. Um, from my studies that I've seen, there has been times when there's been mistaken identity. So we don't have facial recognition. I think that um, we need to know more about it until it's 
I believe it's most effective when you have people and you individually scan everyone's face. And um, I think you'd have to volunteer for that. So I don't know, in my opinion, not saying anything disparaging, I, I, I think we need to know more about it. And, and for me, as a police commissioner, I think that it has to be 100% effective for me to buy into um, facial recognition. By the way, you'll be happy to hear that is exactly the position that Kay Crockford from the Civil Liberties Union uh, uh, explained to us a couple. Not that it should never happen, but I think her word was there should be a pause until one is certain that there is right. certainty. Because you, as you know, when this study was done about the, the Amazon, I think it's R-E-K recognition, recognition with a K is the name of the software, uh, 28 members of Congress were misidentified particularly yeah. members of color, like John Lewis, one of the most famous people in this country. <laughs> yeah. So your basic position is until it's perfected, perfected it's not happening. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't forget where I come, came from. I was, I was raised in a, a tough neighborhood, but it was great people. And I've been mistaken for someone else. Me? No, sorry. Oh, I, I was, uh, You're a good-looking guy, but, but no. Not, yeah, okay, fine. <laughs> Let's go to Fred and Worcester. You're on Boston Public Radio with the Boston Police Commissioner. That'd be Willie Gross. Welcome. Fred. Hello, hello. Hi, hi. Good afternoon, Sorry, sir. Yep. I had you on speakerphone. Sorry. Take it away. Mr. Gross, how are you? Good afternoon, sir. Okay, like here in Worcester, we're lucky enough to have uh, someone at the head of the police who is easily your equal. Um, but I have to ad admit, when, when you do the magnanimous thing and don't call people out and don't bring it to everyone's attention, it gives way to bad teachers, bad police, people like Donald Trump. It's, 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 a, it's a good thing to do as a man, but we're not in that world right now, and we need to get a little more serious about where we are. Who should he be calling out, Fred? I'm not sure we quite yeah, understand. Who should he be calling out? The people who were above him who were jerks or who were bad police. Um, it, you know, it, it, it's, it's one thing to, uh, you know, be a good person, but unfortunately, it leads to people like that, you know, people who take sir, advantage if, of situations. Mm -hmm. Let the commissioner then, respond. We got it, Fred. Sir, Let the commissioner I was, respond. So um, my response was to the question. It was about who I am today. So all that meant is I learned from my good supervisors, those supervisors that have been deemed bad, I'm not talking about current. I'm talking about my life and job experiences, um, whether in, in the private sector or on the police. We all know we run into good supervisors, bad supervisors, and you learn from both to ensure that you're the best that you can be. So it wasn't that I'm not calling out bad supervisors. I'm talking about my experiences from the past. So we've all run into um, people that we deem good or bad in our life, but do we emulate the bad? or learn from that, teachable learning moments, and, and you, you definitely carry on what you learn from the good. So that's all I was talking about. Fred, would... thanks for the call. We got it. Thank you very much for the call. We appreciate it. 877-301-8970. I wanted to hear from Erica, but she dropped off. Well, that's the way it happens. <laughs> Maybe she'll this call business. back. So Maybe I guess, she will. So I guess we'll hear from Linda from Salem. Hi, Linda. Hi. Uh, thank you for taking my call. Sure. Uh, good afternoon. Yes, ma'am. If I am correct, November marks a uh, hundred years from the police strike. Yes, ma'am. That is correct. The strike of 1919. 19 in November. Yes, um, ma'am. Oh. My my grandfather was a police sergeant, 
from Station 16 and went wow. out on that strike. Yes, ma'am. He went out on that, you know, and, and we all know why they struck. No, a lot of people he, don't, I if don't. I can say. So it was deplorable working conditions. You were forced to work almost every day. Uh, you were forced to live at the stations, and um, it was just deplorable. Um, Harley, and, and, any, any, yeah. anything to benefit a police officer is staying at the station, like um, kitchens, housing, bedding, health care, nothing was all denied. Why'd you bring that up, Linda? I'm glad you did, but why'd you bring it up? I brought that up because as the granddaughter of Sergeant Joe Maddy, I know that he would be very proud to see that his efforts and what went on have accumulated, get, can't get this out, into finally having a commissioner like we have now. Oh, thank you. He would, he would be very, very proud. A positive vote today. We, thank you. Linda, you thank know, you. I just, I just wanted to say that. And you said it well. Linda, thank, thank you very much for your call. We appreciate it. 877-301-8970. So we were talking a few minutes ago about your relationship with the Suffolk County DA. Yes. New. Uh, uh, relatively, we Rachel talk, Rollins. We, we talk almost every week well, or you're, every other day. I, I, I have a feeling you will differ with this characterization, but I think it was fair to say early on you had some concern about her uh, uh, position to minor crimes. We all know that Rachel mm -hmm. Rollins ran with a, a variety of reforms, including 15 crimes, a relatively minor crimes. She contended that yeah. she would, in most cases, not prosecute. You were expressed some criticism of that. It was reported in the Boston Globe and elsewhere. I know you met. Uh, uh, where are you now with Rollins, and are you feeling more comfortable so, with her approach to so, uh, criminal so, justice? So let's clear the record. What I was talking about, um, I don't believe it was criticism. It was just a statement of fact that um, while the Globe and other people wanted me to make a comment about that list before I spoke to her, mm -hmm. I says, no, that's disrespectful. I can't go after you on your contextualization of what she said or what she printed. So when I did speak to her, we had a great conversation about um, you know, low-level crimes, and I had a great conversation about perception versus reality. When you say you're not going to prosecute certain crimes, sometimes all people hear is, I'm not going to prosecute. So we were able to contextualize um, what that list meant, and here's what I said for the record. I said, I respect her discretion not to prosecute uh, certain crimes, but the Boston Police Department will make arrests, and we will exercise our discretion when to give a break or not, or to work uh, on, on any means for, like, a first offender. And I have no wiggle room whatsoever for repeat violent offenders. So we have a great understanding, and again, um, we, we talk every week. Have you changed your arrest policy at all? Absolutely not. As a result not. of her prosecutorial? No, sir. Uh, uh, not at all. The, the laws were made by the people and for the people, and then only the people can change the law. So but again, you, But you should exercise discretion and decide in certain circumstances right. to do what she's doing. So you don't enforce every law, needless to say. Right. We do exercise discretion. But people are constantly trying to pit the DA versus commissioner, like it's some TV show or something, mm -hmm. and we won't do that. We both realize where we came from. We realize that there shouldn't be a separation because it's a disservice to the community. But um, we 
and my edict to the officers, and I'll tell everyone right now, we will make arrests because the people in this commonwealth, in this city, deserve justice. I have a, actually, I have a question. So, so mm-hmm. um, you know, we know what a, a DA Rollins was to do. So what would it take? I mean, how, how long of a time frame would this take? How long would it take to actually, I guess you, it sounds like you have to actually change laws to change arrest or so, uh, so, charges. or So or, right yeah, now, what um, everything on that list is still arrestable. Right. So I'm exercising my discretion on a case-by-case basis to make arrests yeah. because the laws have not changed. Right. So this would go to the, legisl- with the legislature? If, if you want a law changed yeah. and make it not arrestable, yeah. then that has to be done through the legislative process. So we're at the very beginnings of, right. of any kind of reform. And I, and I think you need to talk to the DA about what, she's, what she means by not prosecuting certain crimes. Mm-hmm. Um, we've always had diversion. We've always had breaks. It was called continue without a finding. Mm-hmm. Um, I started my career in the streets, then the gang unit, then the drug control unit. There's been several times where we've given breaks because you have to realize this. The families that are facing the most challenge, those are the kids that are most susceptible to joining gangs or being forced into gangs or being taken advantage of by predators. And oftentimes they commit crimes. Then you need to go to the prosecutor, defense attorney, and the judge and say, hey, not this kid. This is actually a good kid. And it's a tough situation. Here's the backstory. So when I say we will make arrests, it's a case-by-case basis. And again, I will not bend, waver, or yield to any repeat violent offenders. 877-301-8970. Let's go out to Framingham, where Tom is on Boston Public Radio. He's about to speak to the commissioner of the Boston Police Department, Willie Gross. Welcome, Tom. Hi, all. Hi, Hi. Commissioner. Hi, sir. Um, I had a question. How are you? I had a question um, regarding the straight pride parade that's being planned for, for Boston at the end of the summer. Um, mm-hmm. My understanding is that the latest is that their application has been approved for a permit, but that it's up to the discretion ultimately of, of Boston police and some other folks. Um, I also know that for a fact that um, the organizers of this parade are um, recruiting some of the same violent extremist right-wing folks that we saw in Charlottesville uh, to come up here and be part of it. And so I'm wondering um, how you're preparing for this, if you have a, a, an opinion or a take on this, uh, a position on this at this time, or well, what the often, situation is. Oftentimes when people want to exercise their, their First Amendment rights, um, sometimes they bring other folks in with them. So. Our duty is to ensure that everyone can exercise their First Amendment rights, but you better do it in a fashion that's not threatening to the rest of the folks around you, to this commonwealth, or to this city. We will not tolerate any violence. We will not tolerate anyone's uh, rights being taken advantage of. So you have a right to exercise your First Amendment rights, and um, you've seen us many times um, out there, Jim, and we're not over-militarized, but... Uh, um, what's, what's paramount is um, the rights of individuals, whether you're protesting or counting protesting. You can't do that in a violent way. You know, uh, we will address up, it. Tom, thank you for your call. Tom is right, though, is that of the two-step process, from what I understand, the city has said there's no reason not to grant this permit, and the final approval rests with you. Is that not correct? That's correct. And it will be granted based upon what you said? After I review everything. 
but there's no re- you have no reason to think it will not be granted based right. on what you know. I can't I can't say no. You can't march because of other people's contextualization or their views or perceptions. You have a right to exercise your First Amendment rights. You know, there was. A, 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 I wonder if you've begun to think about this. I think it's scheduled for sometime late in August. Uh, there was a something that at least it appears to be relatively comparable. It was that that very small counter demonstration. I believe post Charlottesville. Obviously, you were the number two guy at this point. Yep, that that's point, right you were there. Not number one. I'm sure you were. Uh, they were. Those demonstrators were segregated. Uh, if I recall correctly, even the media didn't get access to the demonstration itself. Is your expectation, and this I, is... May I correct that? Well, when you do, but it, yes. please, whatever that was, which you'll correct in a second, is your expectation that this would be handled in the same fashion? But what, what did I get wrong? So, remember what I said about learning lessons, mm-hmm. lessons learned, teachable I remember moment? well, yes. So, Charlottesville, the protesters and counter-protesters were not separated, and their emotions got the best of them, and then they clashed. So you learn from that. If you don't learn from that, you're not doing a service to your your city. So what we had during that demonstration, we made sure that the, um, the speakers had every right to exercise their views in peace. So we put them at the bandstand, and we put barriers here to separate from the counter protesters so that they could exercise their First Amendment rights, and they could exercise their First Amendment rights to counter-protest. And we were in, the pl- in between. So for the press, they were in a certain area. And they had their section as well, so they did have access. So, so, but what are you going to do this time? I mean, this time it's a march, right, down right. certain streets. I mean, how are you going to keep everyone separate? So... What we do is that we do have teams in place that will march with the protesters, right? And we keep all sides separated. Because I can see... And as well, we have this thing that we call helping each other out, mutual aid. So I have a citywide bicycle unit that's 35 individuals, but when I bring in my brothers and sisters from um, cities and towns outside of Boston, that expands to 150 um, bicycle riders, and we utilize um, that along with quick deployment teams and um, public order platoons, which will be held in reserve. So, again, we want to make sure everyone has the right to exercise their First Amendment rights, and also we utilize messaging as well. So thank you um, for getting this across to people. We want peaceful protests. There is no room for violence on either side. That will be addressed. Are you, are you concerned that this could get out of hand? Uh, you know, you have this, this, uh, you know, this, this straight pride parade, and then in a city where uh, you could have a lot of activists quite upset about it. I'm sure there will be, but you, you always have to have concerns. That's why you prepare. And again, that's why you need to um, issue forth the proper messaging that this is the United States. You have a, re- an, a right to exercise your First Amendment rights to protest, or counter-protest. We want you to do it peacefully. No one would hear your message if you're fighting. All they get is that you're violent, fighting and you're violent and you're ignorant. So, please talk about your views. Please talk about your counter-views. But you're going to have to do so peacefully. You don't have the right to attack each other. Are you more comfortable in a suit and tie or in a uniform? 
uniform all day. I figured you were. So how weird, I mean this sincerely, after those three decades that Shirley mentioned, <laughs> I mean, how weird is this to get up every, I, I mean this is a serious no, I question. Got you. No malice how, of forethought. How weird is that, uh, Commissioner? It is weird. I wish they had garanimals for adults. <laughs> Gee, I got to wake up every morning and matched up, and did I wear that shirt yesterday, or did I wear this suit the other day? A uniform you get up, number one, it's a great representation of a fine profession, um, but a suit, oh my God. So why don't you wear a uniform? Yeah, why don't you wear oh, a so, uniform? No, 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 once you're a police commissioner, those days of wearing a uniform are gone. Why? Because you're a civilian now. Oh, uh, oh I didn't okay. know that. Yes. Okay. Oh. okay. Unlike other agencies, you know, like Cambridge, you can still wear a uniform. That's a shout out to Commissioner Branville Bard. Um, but, yeah, I love uniforms, and unfortunately, I couldn't fit in Commissioner Evans' suit, so... <laughs> Maybe a couple of them you could. Yeah. We have time for one more call for the Commissioner Willie Gross. Michelle and Quincy, you're on with Commissioner Gross. Welcome to the show. Hi there. Hello. Hi. Thank you. Commissioner, I have a question. I'm wondering, I know you work very closely with the transit police. Yes, sir. Um, yes, yes, ma'am. Um, Chief Green. I'm wondering if there's any... any um, plans for them to, you guys to combine together. And the reason I ask mm, that's is interesting. because, I know, well, I know they're very, very short-handed. And, I, and as a mother of an officer and... God citizen, bless you, ma'am. I'm, I'm, oh, I'm concerned with the safety of everyone, given the fact that the <laughs> officers are do, you know, going on four hours of sleep because they don't have enough um, um, officers to fill you know, all the shifts. And I was just wondering if there was any, any you know, any talk of the two uh, units combining. Thanks, uh, Michelle. Not at this time, ma'am. Um, the Transit Police, Massachusetts um, Bay Transit Authority, serves the entire Commonwealth. And so Boston just serves the city of Boston. So their officers and their specific duties and assignments, again, serve the entire state where we don't. But... Where, our, where we have concurrent jurisdiction here in Boston, we work hand-in-hand hand together. Um, even on our community policing programs and initiatives, it always includes the transit police, and we work hand-in-hand hand with, um, with uh, Chief Green. You know, before you go, uh, Commissioner, thank you for the call, Michelle. When you mentioned uh, concurrent jurisdiction, yes. I surely don't want to speak for your predecessor, Commissioner Evans, but I will anyway, since he's sure. not here. Uh, the most aggravated he would get oh, in yeah. the years that we dealt with him was we when we that. asked him about concurrent jurisdiction in the seaport yes. with the state cops. And he lobbied hard on Beacon Hill to get that thing straightened out. And the ultimate, the, ultimately, I think it's fair to say he was not satisfied with the fact that it wasn't worked out. Right. Do you share his frustration uh, about that situation? So here's my thoughts on it. And I get along quite well with Colonel Gilpin. Mm hmm Head of the state police. Head of the state police. So here's where I'm at. Mm -hmm. this, this, this is going to have to be decided by state legislators, okay? They're going to have to make that adult decision. In the meanwhile, we have a commonwealth to protect and a city to protect. There should be no time whatsoever that there should be a separation between state police, transit police, Boston police, or Massport. Because as I alluded to earlier, we were attacked twice by terrorists. You never show a front where you're separated because people of ill intent will use that as an advantage to prey on the citizens of the city and the commonwealth. So all you will ever see from me is a unified front. And if we agree to disagree, 
That will be done in private. And I'm not saying anything disparaging about Commissioner Evans because there should be concurrent jurisdiction. I would rather have three entities protecting the people than just two. So, as well, the state legislative process is going to have to take effect to make those changes. Until it does, we will be working as a family of blue. Has the relationship gotten better uh, over the past year between the state police and uh, Boston police over over the seaport? Again, I don't want to say anything disparaging about Commissioner Evans. He was fighting hard for concurrent jurisdiction, and he was absolutely right. Um, Because of our different career paths, I've always had a great relationship with the state police because I work with them in the streets, in the gang unit, in the drug control unit, and we were very successful in in ending gangs and and ending senseless violence. So um, the people that I work with then are now supervisors. So I could never have a bad relationship because we got each other home safely to our families. But now that we're in our respective roles, again, there's strength strength in numbers and strength in unity. I would ask anyone listening or anyone viewing, does it make sense to be separated when you're supposed to be protecting the people? Or should you see a unified front? Commissioner, it's great to see you. Thanks so much Thank for your you. time, Commissioner Gross. And I do we feel really at home. It. You do? Oh, you well, do. you're welcome you anytime. All Hope right. to see you next month. Thank you thank so you. much, Commissioner. Commissioner Gross, thank you so much for your time. Coming up, is Pride Month getting co-opted by corporate America? Media maven Sue O'Connell joins us for that and more. She's next on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio, broadcasting live from our studio at the Boston Public Library. Back to Boston Public Radio. I'm Jim Browdy. She is Shirley Young from the Boston Globe, sitting in for Marjorie Egan today. We're live from our GBH studio at the Boston Public Library. Joining us for a take on the social norms and abnormalities of the day is media maven Sue yeah. O'Connell, yeah. co-publisher of Bay Windows <laughs> and the South a... End News. Nice to see you, Sue. <laughs> a How are you? Less and more. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> Hi, Sue. So we we have asked this question almost of everybody uh, who's come up to, uh, to, to talk to us today. But did you watch the debates last yes, night? Yes, absolutely. What's your impression? Well, I, I, I'm fascinated by um, where the Democratic platform is, you know, compared to where it was four years ago, what we're talking about, what they're talking about, and how in each debate, um, I think in the first debate, the candidates kind of molded themselves around Elizabeth Warren's point of views. Like, in con- she was the contrast. Like, I'm either more to the left or, mm. or less to the left than Elizabeth Warren. And then I thought last night it was the, the, the Biden moderation. Like, so he was the Elizabeth Warren in, in, the, in the next debate as to how far people will go to the middle. And I, I thought 
I thought uh, Kamala Harris just totally nailed both debates. I think Warren nailed both debates. I thought Castro was a, a standout. I love the little operatic duets between, like, you know, Beto and, and Castro and Klobuchar and what's his name, who's single-handedly saved all women. The oh, right Inslee, yeah, yeah. Uh, Governor Inslee from Washington, <laughs> you know, and, yes. And, of course, uh, Biden and Harris, I thought, was, was, a, was great. Are you so going to mention all 20, or what are you going to do? Okay, <laughs> that's, that's fine. It, that's so all we, it. so uh, I, in my usual hyperbolic fashion, started the show by saying, uh, I think last night was the swan song for Joe Biden. I think not, oh, only, yeah. not only because Kamala Harris, I thought, frankly, devastated him in that exchange about segregation and busing, and that's, I, it just, he was not ready for prime time. There was nothing surprising that he was asked, and he wasn't ready to answer pretty obvious questions no, in a coherent, she, clear, forceful way. I didn't and, think anyway. And she, and she, uh, Senator Harris, you know, we love to judge people by what we think they are, by what they look like and where they've come from, but, you know, she has a number of very moderate stands that would be... Um, uh, that the, the, the moderate Democratic voters could embrace. I mean, you know, she, she ran... As a prosecutor As a in prosecutor California, in yeah. California. You know, I mean, that might turn off some people on the left, but I think if people are looking for that moderate candidate, I think that she could be it. Well, it's funny you say that, because she wouldn't consider herself no. a moderate at all when she talks about health care and right. those sort of things. But there are... You know, it's interesting, and I think time has everything to do with it, or at least sequen sequence is while absolutely correctly uh, uh, Buttigieg was asked the question about how he dealt with the right. shooting of a, uh, uh, of a black man by a white police officer in South Bend, she was not asked any questions about her prosecutorial right. record because obviously that was a few years ago, even though Joe Biden attempted to make reference to it by mm -hmm. saying, well, I was a public defender yep. while you were a prosecutor. But at some point she is going to have to defend that record, and it, it is not, I think, based on what I read, a wildly progressive no, one. Not at all. Uh, it's a pretty much. It would be regressive, I think, on on some issues. You know, especially with kids that, you know, there was the whole uh, uh, kids that don't don't go to school mm -hmm. that she was suggesting arresting them. The I mean, parents. Yeah, the, the, the parents. parents. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's going to be interesting to see that that unfold. But I think that both debates were great for America. I think it was nice to see a bunch of. Uh, adults up talking about yeah. policy and not name calling, and I got my Marion um, Stone. You know, I'm going to go get my crystals. Uh, Are you feeling love like? Today I feel love like. You know, I've I've been following. Um, um, what's her name? Marion uh, Williamson. Williamson. Uh, since the 80s, because she actually oh, really? wrote a number of books. As she's an author, but uh, and, and folks who were suffering and dying from HIV and AIDS, she really sort of ministered that. to them in a way with her I books. Didn't know that about talking about positivity and trying to keep a positive attitude and, and helping your health. So she, she actually has a, quite a, a high profile in the HIV AIDS community and obviously the gay community. Um, but, you know, she was entertaining. We're talking to Sue. Can, can <laughs> we bring up a sore subject? Sure. I hope this is okay. Uh, you uh, took my job. <laughs> Essentially, you handed the torch over. I left NECN. <laughs> you handed the torch, and you took over a I show did. that the has gotten side. rave reviews for years. The take, and from having read your social media, mm -hmm. tonight is your last Tonight's show on the NECN. Tonight's the last night uh, on the take. 
which is why we called it The Take, so we could say On The Take. I got it. Um, finally got it after three years. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's the last show. It, the show's been canceled. I like to say it's hashtag canceled but not fired. Um, <laughs> so I remain at the station, right. and I'll be working on a new uh, as-yet-undetermined political show that's going to be focusing on uh, the New Hampshire primaries uh, at first. Um, yeah, it was a shock. I mean, it was a complete shock to be completely candid and transparent. Well, I don't want to put you in a tough spot with your employer, yeah. but I, I would say I've read a lot of social media around this, and to say that people have raved about your uh, uh, work and how much they already miss you, and I mean, not that you're going anywhere, but well, it's it like that I show. died and I get to read it. It I, is kind of nice. Um, and by the way, uh, even though I was appalled. Uh, uh, at the exact same time, <laughs> same who day. was picked by Be Boston Magazine as best of Boston best talk show TV host. news? No, it's worse than That's that. <laughs> TV news host. What do I do for a living? But at Make least you have a liver. job. At least you have a job. And Let's Sue O'Connell was uh, yep. picked, and I think it it's was a, a great funny choice. day. It was a very funny day. How are you doing? I mean, in all seriousness, um, how are you doing? Well, it, I, it's it's a humbling experience, and I think the three of us can admit that we are rarely humbled. You know, we think we're Marjorie and I were fired at the commercial radio station But you station think you're paying attention, right? You think you, you're reading the tea leaves and you see what's going on and, you know, yeah. and I was totally, as I said to my daughter Ruby for the past uh, six months, I've been doing anything they ask me to do, I say yes to because my contract was coming up and I want to make sure that I'm saying yes and I'm the person that you can rely on. So Ruby would say, hey, can we go out to lunch? I said, no, I'm going to go in early. I'm going to do this. I'm just showing you all the good things that you do to get a job. So when I came home and I said, I have some bad news. The show's been canceled. I still have a job. And she said, how's all that going in early working out for you? <laughs> well, yeah, did she, she really say, say the that? The first thing she said to me was Good that, for your you kid. know, so, um, so, it, so the gobsmacked is a word I've never used before, but now I know what it means. Um, but, you know, I love everybody there. I love the staff. Uh, I love my coworkers, and I, I hope to continue to, to work there. And yeah, I love so being too. the best of Boston I and hope beating Jim Browdy. So there Badly, you go. I should say. Not <laughs> I mean, just I'm hoping your me. bosses are reading all the social media reactions. I'm sure they're not. And <laughs> <laughs> but thank and, you. And, uh, you know, I hope that uh, bigger and better things for you, thank you. on thank NECN. You. And, and especially heading into oh, okay. 2020. The, the primaries will be very exciting. I mean, that's, you know, my, my Donald Trump interview was turned into a robocall. So I'm looking, remember? Oh, that's right, of yeah. Of course it was. Yes, and by the way, we should say, uh, for those who haven't heard us discuss that with you, when you discussed, uh, you in, uh, uh, interviewed Trump, a citizen Trump at the time in New Hampshire, yep. which is when he was on our radio show. We didn't get a face-to-face -face like you did. It was a mistake by Hope Hicks. You, is that she, true? Yeah, it's an absolute, she did not know who she was. She, no, is that oh, true? Oh, yeah, I swear to God. Really? She, Hope Hicks was the, the communications director she for was the indeed. campaign, right? So John Van Skoik, who, you know, the our greatest shared, the greatest producer. Of all time. Not um, the greatest producer, the greatest whatever what of a, all yeah, time. Yeah, absolutely. One of the most wonderful you people know, on the planet. John's we both work for him. Yep, John's calling to, you know, like, we, like all the producers do. You just keep calling and calling uh -huh. and calling and calling. And we were still just NECN. We weren't NBC10 Boston at uh -huh. the time. And I, she just got confused because um, <laughs> I think she thought that we were... Uh, like in New Hampshire, like New England Cable News, which we are, we cover New Hampshire, but we weren't in New Hampshire. And so we got the interview, like the next day they said, you know, drive up. And when I got there, she looked at me and she said, you're not who I thought you were. And now everybody is mad at me. <laughs> and by the way, you All asked, colleagues you are asked mad at Trump me. how he was going to be on LGBTQ yes. rights. And his answer was? His, I asked if we could ha expect forward progress for LGBT rights. And he said, yes, of course you can. 
because I have my thing. You've got your thing. He did describe it as your yeah, thing, didn't thing, he? Yeah, my thing. My homosexuality was thing, my thing. I don't know thing what his is. thing was. <laughs> but I think it's all become a pretty clear I think clear we do now. know what his thing is, actually. <laughs> yeah, and it was, I, I, you know, and I don't know what your experience with him was, but it was, he was, I hate to say this word, but almost delightful. He was professional. He was, he, he, you know how some of, some of them were cranky? You remember, you know, they, they don't want to be touched. They don't want the mic. But, but he was he was. Well, fine. you know what's interesting about that? It's funny. You said, you said I don't know what yours was like. Uh, uh, about six months ago, we played a piece of the interview. He started the interview by saying it was an honor to be with us. Mm -hmm. And we asked him about uh, his position on Muslims. And I think I asked him if he was concerned that if a young Muslim kid, six or eight or ten-year-old, heard that a guy that wants to be president yeah, I yes, said, I said that, that yeah. and uh, does that not concern you? And in a way that also sounded sincere to me, I guess you and I are both mm -hmm. fools, uh, uh, I thought he gave, his answer was, yes, it does concern me, and obviously it didn't concern him as much as it appeared to me I in think, the moment it did. I think whatever the last thing he talked, first of all, I think he's a people pleaser, which is bizarre. Says I really, what people want, he says what yeah, people want, want to wants say, to and I, I think, but yeah, so anyway. In any case, we're talking to Sue uh, O'Connell. And he's by the way, before you go, yeah. is it true, your last show... Uh, uh, a couple of our favorite people, one who's a regular yes, here, are going to ask you questions. Yes, since, oh, wow. Yes, that's cool. Since I've been working in broadcast media since 1978. Yeah. Um, <laughs> wow. Uh, and I've, had, I've worked at record companies, radio stations, nightclubs, the Boston Phoenix. Um, people can send in questions to ask me. Hopefully they'll be lighthearted. They've been a lot of serious So ones. you're the interviewee I'm the interview tonight. tonight. Oh, Great. that's so, very there you cool. Go. That's fabulous. 7 o'clock. still paying me. <laughs> hey, Sue. Um, yes. Uh, I hadn't read this story until uh, you know we had to talk about this today. But uh, about the there was a post there was a story in the Washington Post about the wife guys <laughs> yeah. of the 2020 presidential race. Tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah. So um, you know there's there's a whole bunch of candidates who are really enjoying um, when you ask who their hero is, they say their wife. You know, but we, Beto had had a moment like that, and it's it's an interesting. Um, I, I mean, I. I <laughs> a lot of women asked the female candidates who their hero were, and they didn't say their husband. And even Pete Buttigieg, who has a husband, he didn't say his husband. So there's this interesting societal thing about how men like to think of their women as their hero, which is a beautiful thing. It's a wonderful thing. You don't want to, you know, poo-poo too much on it. But at the same time, well, what are they doing that's so heroic that you're in awe of, and why aren't you doing more of it, I think would be the question that I would ask. I mean, you know, it, why and why aren't any of the female candidates viewing their husbands as heroes? Well, see, I thought the point of that piece was how phony it was. Yeah. Yes. That if it turns out your wife is really your hero, rather than just trying to pander to a particular voting yeah. block, you might actually say her name, which <laughs> I, none I, of them I do. You might life. actually say what she does <laughs> yeah. that causes yeah. her to be... Because maybe she is your hero, but most of the time when someone asks a human being who is a mentor or a hero... You say the name of the human being. You explain what right, they did right. for you or society that caused you to say that. This is like a perfunctory, oh, of course, it's my, my, it's my, my wife. wife. I remember being in high school and our English teacher, uh, Mr. Eidenberg, Ronald Eidenberg, who's probably <laughs> listening now, uh, I hope so. gave us an assignment. 
um, to, to who was our hero. And uh, a few people said, you know, my mom, my dad. And he's like, no, 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 no. <laughs> I don't want that. I want, you know, I want a person. And uh, so yeah, I'm sure he's, he agrees with you. You know, Sue, a couple of minutes ago, as you, uh, I think so, we, oh, you talked to him. We had uh, Willie Gross, yeah. the commissioner here. And uh, a caller, uh, Tom from Framingham, I think, asked him a question about this straight pride <laughs> thing, sort of uh, allegedly celebrating heterosexuality. Because uh, there's not I, enough of it. No, apparently there's More not. More heterosexuality, people. Uh, get, get busy. The city, and I, it appears soon, even yeah. though he's reserving decision, as he says, until he sees all the documents, the police department will give them the permits that they are seeking because, as the commissioner said, they're entitled to their free speech, mm -hmm. too, as long as they're not violent or whatever other adjective words they use. Are you okay with that? Yeah, you have to be. I mean, this is this is it's free speech as long as they can raise the money that they need in order to pay for all the things. These things are expensive, uh, and you know, I wish I wish that it could just be ignored. You know, I wish there wasn't going to be a counter protest or a counter event. Um, I wish we would just say it's happening and cover it to the ability that we should as news people and not make a big deal out of it. We it's a lousy weekend. I mean, this is when all the kids are moving in. We're going to have August 31st. Yeah, we're going to have something. trucks storing like crazy on yeah. Storo Drive. I, I'm torn about how what to do with yeah. this. I mean, I, I think they should. Uh, I, I think it, I applaud the city for uh, mm -hmm. allowing uh, the application to go through, but. As a member of the media, I don't know how much attention we should give right. to this uh, parade. Uh, I mean, you look at the websites, it looks like they're trolling all of us, Well, right? you know, but that's, a, by the way, I'm glad you both mentioned that, because I always have conflict about this, too. I mean, if they were going to have a 1,000 people at this thing, if there's any reason to think it's going to be a real crowd, I would say we all have an obligation to do serious mm -hmm. coverage, you know, for a... But it, the likelihood is good from everything I've read, and I've read almost everywhere. They're going to have 15 people, right. like the Charlottesville whatevers yep. were. And why do we get... I mean, it's been in the New York Times. It's been covered nationally. Mm -hmm. Why doesn't it get a little bite in the paper, one of those AP stories for three paragraphs? And, and until they it. prove this is real, other than a bunch of... You know why. Why? People click on it. People will click on, but people will watch but it, people will read our, it. That's, that's right. It's on yeah. us. You know, that's and why. And I mean, there's tons of things that happen uh, in the city on a regular basis that we don't cover. You know, the yeah. Caribbean Pride, uh, you know, Caribbean uh, Festival just happened. There were Juneteenth. But, you know, we, we don't cover things just because they're happening. You know, um, I, I get that it's a, you know, man bites dog kind of thing. And it's, it's, it's got some laughs in it, you know, this whole straight pride thing and the guys that are organizing it, even though they're, they have dubious backgrounds, uh, there does seem to be, although not the kind of levity that I would appreciate, there does seem to be well, some levity. Well, there's no levity. To it. What's the name of the Grand Marshal? I can never pronounce um, his name. Mi yeah. Milo, whatever his yeah. name Milo, is. Yeah. There are not many laughs there. No, but he's a clown. Uh -huh. I mean, you know, that's his whole shtick. That's, that's Milo's. He's actually the perfect Grand Marshal yeah. for this yeah. parade. So, okay, so if we shouldn't be talking so about it, we shouldn't be, be talking about it. Okay, but I fine. think there will be a counter protest. There a will be. There's uh, there they're already working on it. There should be a peaceful counter demonstration. But then, yeah. I don't know. Ooh, she censored just, herself. No, I did. It's just I'm just thinking about all of the, you know, the police costs, and uh, you know, we're gonna we're gonna overwhelm the straight pride people with thousands of people who come out to show that they're supportive by then making it this sort of event, and then the police overtime, and then the cops have to work okay, on it. Okay, so you know, if we so. shouldn't talk about it, let's not talk about Stop it. Can we move on to one other thing before you go? <laughs> I've been hearing a lot, uh, and there was a piece in the Times as well, but I've also heard a lot about it on the radio and television, about the debate inside the Pride community mm -hmm. about the growing corporate sponsorship and involvement in Pride 
uh, and in some communities, there are actually uh, alternative mm -hmm. parades and events being planned because there is concern that there's over-commercialization. Where are you on this issue? Uh, well, it's, it's not a new issue. It's an issue that's been going on this weekend uh, is Pride in New York City, uh, celebrating uh, Stonewall 50, and there's a, um, a separate group that's, that's not participating in the big march. They're having their own event, which they look at as a political, um, purely political and social activism event. I remember when I worked at the Boston Phoenix, um, we actually became uh, a corporate sponsor of uh, media sponsor of Boston Pride, uh, and uh, we produced the Pride Guide and sold absolute ads on the back. And we went to as a, in vodka, yeah, vodka. Okay. And we went to the, the this event, and these protesters were horrified that we were commercializing Pride. I, I mean, I think uh, it it we're a big enough community that we can have a number of events like we do here in Boston that address all the issues. NBC 10 Boston, NECN and Telemundo New England, we were... Um, oh, you were the media we sponsors. We were the media sponsors and a community sponsor. Uh, and, um, you know, I, I think there's a balance that has to be cut, but things have to get paid for. I mean, all of this stuff that we do that we want to do these events, somebody has to, to, to pay for them. And it'd be great if you just want to have a po small political event. You can do that. It doesn't need... So you're trying to politi politely say that the criticism is misguided? No, I think, it's, I think it's worth having and discussions worth having. But having a corporate sponsor like an Absolute Vodka or an NBC10 Boston of Pride does not exclude you from having your own Pride celebrations that, that can be political or be whatever you want them to be. It, it. it did seem bigger than ever this year, Pride. It, yeah, it's, it it, was Pride the month now. Yeah. It, it's not just one day or one week. It, it's a whole month. Yep. So. Yep. Nice to see you, Sue. Hey, good to see you. i got more free time, so just let me know when you want me to come back We'll in. be watching tonight, too. Good <laughs> yeah, luck with great. everything. Thank you very yes. much. Sue O'Connell is a BPR contributor. She's the co-publisher of Bay Windows in the South End News. Also, also best TV news host in oh. Boston, according to so Boston hard. Magazine. I wish I didn't like her. I'd feel a lot better, by the way. I really would. The last segment of The Take is tonight. What time, 7 Sue? 7 o'clock. 7 o'clock. And um, uh, always great to have you, Sue. Good to see you, So um, up next, when it comes to casting a person of color, does Hollywood have a double standard when it comes to 007? Callie Crossley joins us for that and more. This is 89.7 WGBH Boston Public Radio, live from our GBH studio at the Boston Public Library. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy, Shirley Young, sitting in. She's from the Boston Globe, sitting in for Marjorie Egan, who's off today, live from our GBH studio at the Boston Public <coughs> Library. Joining us, as she does every Friday, is the host of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, which is obviously Callie Crossley. Hi, Callie. Hello. How nice are you? Nice to see you. Excellent. Hi, Shirley. Thank you. Hi. Happy Friday. Yes. <laughs> so, Callie, uh, did you watch the debates last oh, night? Of course. Yes, of course. Yes, of course. What, what, what's your, what are your impressions? Well, my first impression was to recall Shakespeare. Poor player strutting and fretting on the stage, full of sound and fury signifying nothing. So <laughs> that we could go there. But no, there were some, there were some moments that were interesting. I think um, when you get past the horse race stuff, uh, there were some people that acquitted themselves very well. I know that the Kamala Harris moment is going to be played you know, many times and should be. I think that she um, did her job there. She really brought some attention um, to an issue that Joe Biden's been sort of ducking and dodging and made him 
or should have made him stand up for himself in a, in a, in a better way, and he didn't. Um, I, I, the only thing she could have done uh, more was that she could have quoted from some of the letters that he sent to Eastland, which would really have been devastating. People are saying she was devastating in what she said, but she could have gone further if she'd wanted to. Um, she was clear that this was not personal, that, you know, he's not a racist, but there are some issues that he needed to deal with. <laughs> so Jim thinks Biden's toast after last night. What do you think? No, he's not toast. Mm, no, he might be um, a nook and cranny. What's that thing? Uh, English muffin. But, <laughs> oh, <laughs> English <laughs> muffin? <laughs> <laughs> he might be an English muffin for a minute, but he's not toast. Yeah, I, you know, I really don't. You know. think, I, guess, I know that I, I haven't seen the numbers. I'm guessing 20 million people saw it. So it means hundreds of millions did not. But it is going to be played ad nauseum. I think it was a defining, as much of a defining moment in an early debate as I can actually ever remember. Well, and I didn't say that wasn't true. Okay. I'm just saying I don't think he's toast. Well, we shall see. How, yeah. how, how can he recover? Well, he can recover by doing a number of things. First of all, he can recover by not having his people send out whatever nasty thing they sent out to her because that just, you know, that, was, that just flew off of her back. That didn't do, serve him any, serve him well at all. He can say something uh, dramatic about, listen, you know, a lot of people have asked me and I haven't really been forthcoming as I might be. He can do a Pete Buttigieg. You know, I, I, it didn't happen. Or I wish I at the moment said something else. But in the moment, this is what I really felt. Um, obviously, given the rest of my career, I've done X and Y and Z. And that's not what I was trying to do was prevent you from or anybody like you from going to school, get educated. Um, having a, a non-segregated experience in this America. But I think, when we said this early, you know, months ago, Jim, we had this conversation, you've got to take this stuff on if it's in your background. This is why I'm not running for office, but when people decide to run for office, all that stuff is fair game. Yeah, but if, you can't, if he you couldn't know. apologize to Anita Hill when yeah, he called her, yeah. I would argue it's not constitutionally part of the man. And by the way, he's yeah. not alone. It is yeah. very rare to have a Pete Buttigieg right. who says, because I didn't get the job done when right. he was asked the question. You rarely hear that from somebody who's in the top level, I was going to say of American politics, mm -hmm. but of any politics. Speaking of politics, Kelly, you wrote, if I recall correctly, you wrote a commentary mm -hmm. a couple of months ago about the whole census yep. issue and the citizenship question. Even though it seems to me that the Supreme Court 5-4 to four with Roberts, Ju Chief Justice Roberts, as the fifth vote with the so-called liberals, didn't say that there was a definitive constitutional problem with the question mm -hmm. that was... It seems that their decision was such that the clock is running out, and then in 2020, in all likelihood what you were editorializing will come to pass. There will not be a citizenship question. Is that overly optimistic? Well, no, not based on um, the decision they made. My, I, my read on it is his saying to um, Trump aficionados, hey, you got to give me something to work with. You know, I am a graduate of Harvard. I can't just go with your made-up stuff, which everybody mm -hmm. knows is made up. And we all know the history of the guy who died, mm -hmm. who was the, the advisor and gave them the language to use that this is going to work better for. Uh, this is something to uh, help minorities around the Voting Rights Act, which everybody knew was BS. So I, I, I hear Robert saying, you know, not only is this a made-up thing, but I can work with you, but you got to give me a little something to work with. I'm giving you a moment. You know, um, I'm not sure the other four feel that way, but um, I believe that he could change and he could flip on that if they came back with something that looked kind of plausible. Um, I just don't hear him saying definitively, this is not well, what we should be doing. Of course, but I'm just, I don't hear it in yeah. his 
And his no, his no is kind of But one could argue by, uh, you know, they're throwing it back, right, to to the lower courts and and giving the Trump administration to come up with a better explanation. And, but they need to print Starting Monday, the questionnaire right. uh, in order to... But President to Trump has asked for more time, right? So who decides? See, that's, that's where I get confused, because who decides that they can have more time? Because if, if he decides they can have more time, they'll have more time, so they're not printing anything Monday. So I guess they don't need to meet their 2020, their well, self-imposed I, I, I don't know. deadline. I don't know. I mean, the thing was already underfunded. I mean, they barely have enough people to do what they're supposed to do. And uh, for a lot of analysts, the damage has been done, and already scared people. Yeah, I was so. going to. I was, gonna ra- I was wondering <laughs> about that. If you <laughs> think that because of all the, it's, there's a, such a cloud over this yeah. one question that yeah. um, it, it's in effect uh, will will prevent um, many immigrants um, from even filling out the question. Right, and then you know, and the way that immigration is uh, in the headlines and all around us now, uh, it, I mean, it couldn't be more fraught. So. If, even if you weren't clearly playing attention, this kind of stuff would make you leery of answering anybody's question, even if it's supposed to be uh, something that uh, is just about having a head count. Nobody understands the, the broader implications of not having you count it. You know what I mean? You're just trying to protect yourself. Mm. I, I would love to talk about Wayfair, something mm. that's uh, yeah. near and dear mm. to me. I yeah. wrote a column this right. week. So, Lots mm. of people wrote columns and stories mm. about what happened at Wayfair. Uh, their employees there um, last week discovered that uh, Wayfair was going to fill an order about $200,000, right, uh, for uh, beds from a government contractor that's uh, furnishing uh, a migrant border camp. And these their employees got really upset, yeah. and they demanded from their bosses that... Uh, that a they don't fulfill the order or at least donate the profits because they do not want to support these atrocities on the southern border. Yeah. Um, the bosses <laughs> said no, right? The yeah. bosses yeah. said we're, said we're we're filling the order. What do you what do you think happened? What what do you make of this uh, situation? Well, at first it had you know, kind of a tinge of the um, market basket, and then I realized no, that's not really the, the same kind of thing. Um, I think that. Um, the employees were feeling this is what we can. This is how we can respond to something that we feel is problematic, um, hugely problematic, and uh, not and huma- not humanitarian. We're looking at these bodies of people. Um, we we feel complicit. I think that's the word to use. Yes. We feel complicit as people who are employees making these beds, sending it to this company that you know cur- clearly doesn't doesn't care. I don't. I think the the. The bosses could have handled it just a little bit better. Yeah. I mean, I think their answer could have still been no, but let me just tell you why we say no. Um, and we hear you, but there's another way to say it. This was like, look, we got an order, we're going to fill it. And so, yeah, I, I, I described know, it as it had all the empathy of yeah. an automated uh, email apology, yeah. right? Like as if it was like a misdelivery. I mean, it was, it was incredibly tone deaf. I mean, I called them the most tone-deaf bosses of uh, 2019, and the employees, but the employees did something extraordinary. Then they, on Wednesday, right, marched to, marched, uh, marched to Copley Square. Their, their headquarters is right here yeah. in the Back Bay, yeah. and they, they conducted a protest, a, a p- very peaceful protest, which I thought was great, and they were joined by, I mean, there were, must have been hundreds of employees, and then they were joined by probably hundreds of supporters uh, who uh, believe that these are camps, concentration camps. Yeah, um, so I think it's a, and I also think it's a, a going to be a branding question for them now. Yes. Uh, it, to my knowledge, Wayfair has only ever been associated with positive things. They have great ads, 
And I thought to myself, there'll be so many silent boycotts, meaning that yes. it comes up and people go, you know what? If I have to buy furniture, I'm just not buying it from not them. Not so silent boycotts. Yeah. I was going to yeah. say, already on social mm -hmm. media, you have, uh, I, th I think Celeste Ding, the author yeah. uh, here, was, was saying she's not buying anything from, buying anything from Wayfair. And, uh, but, um, but I also think it's not uh, branding not just for customers, mm -hmm. but also for potential future employees well. uh, because they're all millennials there. It's, yeah. a, it's a tech company, an e-commerce company, and uh, that group, they care about the values of their company. It might be harder rec to recruit. Well, also, there's mm. another, a, a, a couple of things we mentioned yesterday, but if you weren't listening, we had Nancy Kane from Harvard Business School, and Margie and I were talking to her about it, and you know, one of the ironies of this, that it really hasn't been mentioned in any of the stories so far, Marjorie did an event uh, somewhere in this building for the Shaw Family Foundation, mm -hmm. and Jill Shaw, the wife of one of the co-owners of this uh, company who runs the foundation, is the woman who's involved in changing all the lunches to healthy in oh, the Boston wow. Public Schools, mm -hmm. so they're working with, with kids. So you know, the juxtaposition of this with kids is compared to the work they're doing. But the thing that's been lost in most of the coverage, it was in a great Atlantic piece yesterday, when Steve Conine, who's the other uh, uh, co-founder, co-owner of this with Shaw, uh, was speaking to the employees and saying, you know, we don't, we don't do politics, we don't, you know, we believe in diversity if a customer is a legal buyer. It wasn't true. I mean, the point that was made in a great piece, I think in the Atlantic, is they pulled their ads from the right. Laura Ingram right. show yeah. when right. Laura Ingram mm -hmm. was trashing David Hogg, the activist yes. student from Parkland. Yeah. Uh, they edit uh, uh, some of the content uh, to get rid of hate speech on the the... Uh, on their social media stuff that, that, that is incoming. Right. So the point is they do make political decisions. And in 2019, for any corporation, particularly with young employees, yeah. to suggest that politics can be a, in a separate silo from what you do in your business is really naive. So I, I don't have any indication that they're anything but good people running this company. But I thought your piece about them being tone deaf was so true it is painful, and they attempted later in the game to, by giving a hundred grand to the Red Cross, to atone for this selling sin. But it's pretty clear to me they have a lot more to do to get their customers and potential employees feeling well, that the company like is what, what they we want it to be. What we just said about um, Joe Biden. I mean, I think you have to say more about you know what you're doing you have to address your past history so see i didn't know that about the shaw foundation you have to say yes if you look at us we're doing this we're doing this and this and even with this going on this is why we have decided to yeah in the past we did the david hogg thing you know what we decided after that no more we're not doing it and so you know it's very uncomfortable for us at this moment but we're just we've decided we're not and here's why uh, but i don't think you can just say we got to fulfill an order I don't think I don't think that I don't think that and that's exactly is a what thing. they did. Yeah, it was terrible. Yeah. I don't. Think and by the way, for the those way. who think it was a local story, because yeah. Wayfair's headquartered down the street here, yeah. as I mentioned yesterday, we were Marjorie and I were watching it in studio live on CNN. Yeah, CNN was broadcasting oh, yeah. the demonstrators at, in Copley live. This is a huge national story. No, I saw it on CBS too. Yeah, I, I usually watch so, CBS. So yeah, no, I, I'm sure we'll. There's going to be more to this, actually. So if Marjorie was here. Mm -hmm. I'm going to sort of channel Marjorie because yes. she's off today. She would say what I also feel. Yes. 
Idris Elba is like the best looking man on the planet. <laughs> yeah, now, yep, I yep, would yep. accuse her of being superficial when <laughs> yeah, she did that. Yes. But in light of the fact she's not here, I will say it. Uh, there are rumors afoot, there have been for yeah. ages, yes. that he would be, is it Bond 25? Whatever it is. The, the Bond 25 is the next one, with, the last one with Daniel Craig. Okay, so yeah. that he would be the next James yes. Bond. And obviously the first African-American right. James Bond. And he's encountered a bit of blowback, to say the least. Yeah, you know, all this time, he hadn't said anything, really. People kept throwing his name out there. There's been all people, you know, doing polls, surveys, you know, writing to the Bond people saying, yes, yes, and he kind of kept quiet. But in this interview that he did, I'm trying to think, was it Vanity L or Vanity, Vanity Fair? Fair I think, yeah. He just said that, you know, he's, he, he gets a lot of essentially hate mail from people saying, well, you can't be it, wow. um, and I don't want to see you in that role. And he was just a little disheartened by it because, you know, obviously if anybody's followed his career even a bit um, aside from his good looks, he's done a variety of roles. He really is an actor's actor. He can do mean people. He can do good people. He can do the whole romantic roles. He's just across the board um, a really good actor, and this is something that he would enjoy. So he says you get a little disheartened when you get people from a generational point of view he's choosing to believe is generational that, that his playing Bond can't be. You know, by the way, yeah. and, and well, uh, no one should deny that racism is a part of this, but it's also stuck in the mudism. Yeah. Because I remember, I, I don't know if you've heard, Broadchurch was one of my favorite shows from mm -hmm. last year. It was just brilliant on Olivia Coleman and a whole bunch of great people. One of the stars was the mother of a kid who loses his life, Jody Whittaker. Mm -hmm. She went on to become, I think, the 13th, 15th, 20th. Doctor Who and the first oh, woman. Oh, right, yeah, yeah. And she got all this hate mail, yeah, too. that's right. How dare a woman be... I mean, it's just... It is... Well, like you know, the, the young black woman who in the Hunger Games, um, who then went yeah. on to be the lead role in The Hate You Give, mm. really, I mean, it got so intense that her parents had to you know, do some security efforts when she first had that role. So it, can, you know, it goes on. You know, one thing mm. I recently saw a, a 007, one of the old 007 movies, I think with Pierce Brosnan. Mm -hmm. And uh, I have to say, this is the first time I saw 007 post Me Too. Mm. And yes. they need to re oh, they yeah. reinvent yeah. the franchise. Oh, I mean, yeah. it's incredibly... This is with Halle Berry, and Halle yep. Berry was a strong female character, but it was still sexist. I mean, they need... Oh, they time. should have a black 007 <laughs> and make sure he is, he is, he is uh, you know, maybe like a great female character. All I think by they thought characters. they did that when they put Judy Dench in the role as, uh, you know... Uh, uh, even more, as, uh, though. Even him. more so. Oh, I know. I'm with you. I'm just saying. It always has been kind of cringeworthy it, uh, with, that, with that. Well, now, yeah. post-Me Too, it's really cringeworthy, yeah. and so... <laughs> I, I, they need to revamp the whole suit, franchise. So, Kelly, we'll what are you see. doing Sunday night on Under the Radar with Kelly Crossley? Well, we're doing the hold hour with the mass politics profs uh, doing, of course, we're going to talk about the debates, but we're also looking at the Supreme Court decisions. We're trying to talk about uh, whether Nancy Pelosi and the Democrats lost in this Senate-led bill. Uh, to the border bill. The border about, bill yeah. um, to raise money uh, for immigration. We don't know how it's going to be spent. And also the Boston City Council races. The signatures have had to be in. And so looking at how many people are in those races and what are the themes that we see and what, uh, how, how we go forward. We'll be listening. Okay. Good to see you, Callie Thank Crossley. You. Thank you. Okay. Callie Crossley is the host of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Uh, you can catch it Sunday nights uh, right here on 89.7 at 6 o'clock. You can also subscribe to her Under the Radar, Radar podcast on iTunes. Follow her on Twitter at Callie Crossley. Callie, it's great to catch up with you. Um, up next, it's time for our Friday news quiz featuring the lead actors in the Huntington Theater production of Werma. Keep your dial on Boston Public Radio, live from our GBH studio at the Boston Public Library.
Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. I am Jim Browdy. Shirley Young is sitting in for Mardrigan, who's got the day off. We are live from our GBH studio at the Boston Public Library. Joining us for our Friday news quiz are actors Nadine Malouf and Christian Berea. They are the leads in the new powerful adaption of Yerma. It's a story of a woman's obsession, I was going to say with what, but she can describe what the obsession is with, by playwright Melinda Lopez, which she's based on the original text by Federico Garcia Lorca. Yerma is presented by the Great Huntington Theater Company at the Calderwood Pavilion at the Boston Center for the Arts. It's on stage through this Sunday. Nadine and Christian, it's great to meet you in the flesh. Thanks for being here. Thanks Thanks for for having having us. us. And by the way, you guys are both otherworldly in this play. You're really fabulous. It's great to meet you. Thank you. Yeah, so we much. both saw it. Well, we you did. Saw it separately, not together. We did see it separately. <laughs> um, anyways, tell us the story uh, in your own words about this play. It is a story of, of uh, a woman's obsession. It's also a story about a marriage, I think. Um, Melinda did such an extraordinary job in adapting the uh, Federico Garcia Lorca's play and making it about this marriage and these two people. And I think it's also a play about um, legacy and something larger than yourself and leaving behind something. Um, what do you think? And she, we haven't mentioned it, but the obsession that she has is with uh, having a child, with conceiving. Um, and so her uh, pursuit of that ultimately leads to tragic consequences and their lives sort of fall apart at not achieving that dream. And the uh, woman who you play, Yerma, who is surrounded by all these friends who are having children in bushels, essentially. (laughs) And there seems to be no dividing line. It's in a farm, and there's no dividing line in the private lives. This is a fair statement between the women who were and are your friends, are and were your friends, and you, and, and, and an attempt to shore you up, but at the same time, inadvertently sort of breaking you down. Is that a fair description? (laughs) Definitely. Yeah, you don't smile as much in the play as you're (laughs) smiling here. And for good reason, uh, I should... I should uh, uh, say. What do you think of this? Uh, you train? Did you train in Massachusetts? Did I read this this morning? I did. I I, I moved here from Australia um, to a town called Grafton, Massachusetts. By the way, that's the typical pipeline for great <laughs> actors. By the way, from Melbourne, Australia, to Grafton, Mass. How the hell did you end up in Grafton, Massachusetts? My parents. My parents came over with me, and um, we got citizenship, and so I'm a dual citizen now, and I feel very fortunate to be so, but yeah, an, an unlikely journey, but one that I am, feel very fortunate. Is this the first Massachusetts experience for you? You've been in Modern Family. You've done a ton. I mean, movie, you've done a ton of stuff. Is this your first Massachusetts deal? I had been here for, uh, for a weekend one time and loved it, and it was in the wintertime, so I love it even more now. <laughs> uh, and it's been wonderful to, to be here for a couple of uh, months. You know, if I may first say, I love the Calderwood Pavilion. I love the theater. It's so intimate and great. Do you like it as a performer, as performers, as much as the audience does. We almost feel like we're, I do, like I'm almost there on the stage with you. I mean, do you feel that when you're 
there, I do. Nadine? Do you? I do, definitely. I feed off of the audience a lot. I spend a lot of time looking out into the audience mm -hmm. as well, so I use that definitely. And for, for some reason, I'm having a, a strange experience in this, with this particular production where I somehow don't feel the audience. I've never experienced this before. Why is that, do you think? I don't know. It's a, it's a mystery. We're I, there, I, I by do, the way. I just I want to be clear yes, in case yes. you were missing it. I do. Yeah. When the lights come up, I see you. <laughs> um, but... Uh, yeah, I don't know, but but I certainly love love the space. And as we were um, putting the show together technically through our, our uh, uh, rehearsals, I would often pop out there and you know watch the show from different points, and it all you know looked fabulous and got to learn about the space and love it. So both of you, this is your so you've been in Boston. Nadine, is this your first time doing a production in Boston? Yes. Even though you studied here. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and and uh, I think the Lincoln Center just named you emerging artist for 2019, right? Yes. Congratulations. Thank you. And so, how does the Boston theater scene compare to to other ones that you've been in? My goodness, I don't know that I know it as well. I mean, the audiences have been really receptive and really generous, which has been wonderful for us to uh, do a new play, especially a play so highly poetic and symbolic and um, challenging and intense. Oh, my God. Um, and the audiences have been really, really wonderful. But, you know, Boston's great, but let's face it, it's no Grafton. Would you agree with I that? Agree. Well, I mean, 100%. Nothing can. So can we do a little quiz with you guys, and then we'll talk a little bit more mm -hmm. about your work. Is that yes. fair enough? Okay. Who do you want to start with? Uh, you can do Christian or Nadine. You decide. All right, well, we'll go. Oh, let's see. We'll do Christian. We'll test Kay. your... Uh, <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> we'll, we'll test your... I think Multiple this, choice. I think this is a sports question. Let's see. Um, this week, Carolina Panthers quarterback was caught on film doing what at an air, airport? Is this Cam, Cam Newton? Is that his name? I don't know who it is. Okay. A, switching all the TVs in the terminal from Fox News to the home shopping network. B... Offering a man $1,500 for his seat, which had a little extra leg room. Or C, installing an, an illegal knee defender on his tray table to prevent the person in front of him from reclining. I'm going to go with B. Whoa. Ding. Ding, ding, ding. Very impressive. Did you guess or did you Thank know? You. I, I sensed it. <laughs> I, did, I did my undergrad yeah. in Chapel Hill, so Carolina Panthers are in my, in my ether somehow. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, here's your opportunity to catch up, Nadine. You ready or no? I'm ready. The MBTA isn't the only public transit system with issues. What caused delays recently in Japan? A, Godzilla returned in a misguided effort to get people to improve their heart health by walking more. B, President Trump tried to use the train but was incapable of figuring out how his card worked at the turnstile, causing a massive bottleneck at the station. Or C, a teensy little slug just seeking shelter from the elements, got fried. Is it A, B, or C? <laughs> exactly. Don't look at me like that. Is it A, B, or C? What is the answer? I'm going to take a stab in the dark and say C. It is C. <laughs> Dang. That was with a lot of confidence. A single slug made its way into some sensitive equipment, causing oh. delays to 12,000 passengers and led to 26 trains Wow. Being, uh, uh, canceled. Slug. You know, we have mentioned from this play, I didn't know there was music until I got there, by the way, and there was a great piece on the flamenco guitarist in the Globe. I don't know if you saw it a day or two ago. Is it Juanito? Juanito Pascual. Oh, my yeah. God. Is he on? Tell us a little bit about the music. And you guys sing. I mean, you sing a lot. You sing a little in this. Tell us a little bit about the music in the play. I feel like it is the blood of the of the story. I feel it drives the story forward, and it's so incredibly um, 
such a gift to have these two magnificent musicians with us. They were with us the whole rehearsal process as well, creating this music and the life and the sound of the play. It's almost like another character. Yeah. Really. yeah. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and Lorca always had music in his plays. He was a very accomplished pianist himself as well. Um, so I, I feel like it sort of lifts the, the play into like a different kind of stratosphere. And By the way, we should say we're talking to Nadine Malouf and Christian Berea, who are the leads in Yerma playing at the Huntington through the Sunday. I'm sorry. So, so these songs, were they written by Lorca or they, were they adapted as part of the production? He had lyrics in the original script. Uh-huh. I imagine that Melinda might have grabbed a lot of them and then flushed them out, which is sort of what she does for, for, for the play in general. There's a lot of direct uh, text from the original source and then she sort of expands on what, the skeleton that was already there. But we did ha- also have a composer named Mark Bennett, who uh, composed all the music as well. So, and he was also with us through the process, which is unusual to have all those elements from day one up through opening. So you obsessed on having a kid. Your character. I'm obsessing on the Franklin School for the Performing Arts. I'm sorry because I'd never heard of it before, and I've lived here for 30 years. What is it? I mean, what is the Franklin School for the Performing Arts? That's where you went, right? Yes, it's a performing arts school, and it's where I trained. all through high school, basically, to sing, to dance, to act. Did I, your family move there for that, or no, were you there and no, that happened to be I there? I moved here and, and I wanted well, and to. Yeah, where there. did you grow up? Which suburb? Or uh, where did you? Not well, Grafton is where the school is. No, but, Grafton oh, is where I grew oh, up. Oh, grew up. Okay, yes, got it. Franklin, Massachusetts is where it's the where school Frank, okay, is. Got it. I was searching frivolously. My mom was searching for a place for me to study acting. And who's the most famous person from Grafton? Do you know? I have no exactly. Idea. That's what I figured. Okay, let's go to round two. You may be, by the way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> okay. Uh, question three. Is that what I read? That is okay. question three. All yes. right. Two software engineers, a college professor, and a lawyer were stuck at the Reagan National Airport after their 10 p.m. flight to Portland, Maine was canceled. How did they make it out of the airport? This is for Christian. Uh, A, uh, since she has a plan for everything, they went to Elizabeth Warren's website, which offered a 10-point plan on how to get a refund, (laughs) a five-point plan on how to take an airline to small claims court if the airline refused a a refund, an application for a no-interest student loan for a pilot certification program, and a downloadable manual of how to hotwire Mitch McConnell's personal jet. That's question. That's A. That's one answer? That's one answer. B, wow. as compensation for the airlines, uh, as compensation, the airlines gave them coupons to Cinnabon. After eating a box of them, they were taken to the hospital for acute hyperglycemia. Oh, no. C. These are really long answers. Well, listen, I don't write uh, them. <laughs> Angus King, who was also on the canceled flight, suggested they rent a car, pull an all-nighter, and drive the 10 hours to Portland, Maine. Don't ask her to repeat the question. The <laughs> answer is Christian, please. I'm going to go with the cinna button. I'm going to go B. Ooh. Um, you can still steal the question, steal Nadine. The, it's a big yeah, moment you for you. You can steal the question. C. Ooh. Ding, ding, ding. Thank you. That was a delayed ding, ding, ding. Now, you are up by a whopping two-to-one score. If you were to get this right, you will move into the bonus round with Christian with a three-to-one lead. Do you understand what I'm talking about or no? I understand. I feel the pressure. Here's the deal. In Bangkok, Thailand, a new cafe is trying to set itself apart from the rest with this novel setting for diners. What is that setting? A... A death cafe where diners are invited to order coffee and tea and then lie in a coffin to reflect on death. 
Okay, B, a kid cafe where to promote abstinence, teenagers and young adults are placed at a table with screaming, crying child who will order three dishes and throw them all on the ground. The diner will then have to pay for the child's meal. Or C, a De Niro cafe where everything is all about actor Robert De Niro. Diners can enjoy dishes such as a lox tail, a bagel and lox sandwich, or wag the hot dog. Is it A, B, or C, a death cafe, a kid cafe, or a De Niro Cafe, which would that uh, which would that be? Oh, uh, C. No. <sighs> you was, can steal, that's Christian. That's very sad. Now, you, you can, can you can tie steal. it up. Yeah. Which is pretty exciting. Yes, okay. That is correct. That's going to be my choice. <laughs> that, well, that's what everybody says. I mean, that's totally <laughs> that doesn't get you anywhere. So, what do you do? I mean, for Sunday is the end of this run, and people should rush out there because there are only a couple. That what are you doing after this, Christian? Where are you going? Uh, I go back to L.A. about a week later. I think I'm going to be doing a new play workshop of an adaptation of Taming of the Shrew. And, uh, and Modern Family starts production, I think, in early August. It'll be our last season. Um, so hopefully I'll pop in to, to visit them once or twice. Is, the, is it the last season by choice, right? They're still, the show's still doing great, Yes, right? the show is doing great. I th- it's still like a top five performer. It's one of the uh, highest rated shows for ABC. It's kind of amazing. You know, it reminds yeah. me of a story I've told far too many times. Larry King is interviewing Seinfeld. And Larry, it's a compilation of Larry King's dumbest questions, and there are many of them. <laughs> and he turns to Seinfeld, and he said, how did it feel, Jerry, to have your show canceled? And Seinfeld's head almost pops off. <laughs> he responds by saying, cancel Larry we were number one in America can't so in any case modern family is doing great and what are you doing after this Sunday uh, I go back to New York for a bit and I have a few uh, projects there and then I go home to Australia to be with some family oh, which I, I'm really looking forward oh. to Before we, I'm sorry go ahead. are your parents still here Grafner are they moved, yes moved, oh they are yeah, wow. they have a they have a place still here, and they've come to see the show several times. Oh, that's great. You know, before we move to the bonus round, which I know you're both really excited about, uh, and it is two to two, I read a thing. When I was reading about both of you guys today, I was reading about you. I hope I got this right. This is Nadine. I don't know if I did. That you performed in a play that was done in people's kitchens. Is that revi- you're yes. nodding in agreement? Yes. What is that? I mean, what, what was that? It was a one-woman show um, about a woman who falls in love with a Syrian refugee, and he, he goes back to Syria, and she um, is sort of heartbroken and, and uh, is herself part Syrian, and so goes on this journey of identity, and she goes to travel to Syria. And all the time that she tells you this story, she's cooking this very traditional Syrian dish, which I did in several kitchens all over New York City. She went to someone's house? Inside And did a homes. play in yes. their kitchen? Yes. To whom? To uh, people who bought tickets. I mean, it was... Oh, and they invited people and they... Strangers. I mean, people opened their homes to strangers to come and watch someone cook and tell a story. And it brought people together as food really does in many ways. You wouldn't do Yerma in my house. Would you tonight? Is that... Is that... Oh, you're busy, probably. We can talk to the Huntington. Okay, we'll see what we can do. There's a lot of flowers in our production. That's a very good point. There are. Are they dandelions? What are they? Dandelions. Marigolds? Dandelions? Oh, okay. Okay, here's the bonus round. In honor of our guests, Nadine Maloof and Christian Boria, lead actors in Yerma, play about a childless woman desperately hoping to conceive. Our bonus round will test their knowledge on all things motherhood. Fair enough? Now, you asked Nadine the first question. We rotate here. Okay. Shirley Young. 
Uh, which animal has the longest gestation period of any animal remaining pregnant for 22 months? Excellent question. Yeah, this is good. A, an elephant shrew. B, an elephant sea, seal. Uh, C, an elephant. C, an elephant? Wow. Very good. A lot of confidence there, too. Yes. <laughs> okay, so Christian, it's three to two. And there are only two questions left, so the pressure is, I think, at being elevated to some degree. Which Queen of England is infamous for not enjoying motherhood, saying, quote, I have no adoration for very little babies. An ugly baby is a very nasty object, and the prettiest is frightful. This is apparently true. Is it Elizabeth the, A, Elizabeth I, B, Queen Victoria, or C, Anne Boleyn? Elizabeth I, Queen Victoria, Anne Boleyn, uh, A, B, or C. Entirely. I'm going to go with B, Queen Victoria? Yes. Wow, that wow. surprises me. Now, how excited are you that it's tied going into the final question? I'm so excited. Sweating. This is unbelievable. <laughs> We're all sweating. So this is, this is for all the marbles, Shirley, and you get to ask the question. All right. So take your time in answering, uh, Nadine. Go ahead. Actor Allison Janney has won many awards for her work on CBS's TV show Mom. Which movie has... Is it Janie? Janie, Janie yeah. yeah. Which movie has Janie not acted in? A, Lady Bird. B, Hairspray. C, The Help. Oh, the look on her face is not good. A, B, or C? Can, Can we repeat the yes. answers? A, Lady Bird. B, Hairspray. C, The Help. A, Congratulations. Look at the look yeah. on her face. Excellent. Good. That well was pretty done. great. Well done. Well done for you. Neither of you got anything wrong. That's pretty hardening. <laughs> Were you nervous before this? This is high stakes. Were you nervous when you're coming over here, Christian? Tell the truth. A little bit. A little bit. Yeah. I saw the debate, so I was prepped for that. Yeah. I oh, I you saw the debate? I did. Okay. Well, let's get to it. We have two minutes left. What'd you think? Uh, I thought Kamala Harris did particularly well last night. She's your senator, right? She is. Yeah. 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 I'm excited about her, and I'm also excited about Buttigieg. Uh-huh. And I thought Warren he was did here, sitting where you were three weeks ago. By the way, Buttigieg. <laughs> so we were discussing. Here's a multiple choice question for you. Next, Joe Biden will be a president, b a greeter at Caesars in Las Vegas, <laughs> or c a busboy. I mean, he's done. Is he, he, that was a bad night. I love it? Joe Biden, but I I just feel like the the party and the culture is ready for something new and fresh and much more sort of forward-thinking. Did you watch the thing last night? I did, yeah. Oh, this, we didn't know this. And? <laughs> and? I think it's early days. I, I, I feel like I'm still sort of recovering from last time, so I just was sort of watching from, from a distance. I'm not invested yet. Is that because you're not saying what you really think, or you're really not no, invested no, I, yet? No, I, no, it's very early. There's so many candidates, and I felt like not everyone got uh, the same amount of time, mm-hmm. really, so... Um, I'm just, I'm sort of waiting to see what, what happens. So, Christian, the, the Kamala Harris that you saw last night, is, is that the Kamala Harris you know from California? Uh, you know what surprised me about her? I knew that she was very uh, tough and sharp. Sure. There was something so personal and um, warm about her that I saw yesterday that I found really interesting as well. It was a great debate. Hey, it's great meeting the two of you, and congratulations on wonderful performances and a great show, and lots of luck in the future. We hope you'll visit us Thank next time so you're in town. Or in Thanks Grafton, in your case, yes. we hope. 
Uh, that's it. That's it. Shirley, you were great. Thank you. This is where you say goodbye. Oh, goodbye. No, not just goodbye. Wait, am I supposed to read it? Well, actually, no, actually, I'm supposed to. I thought you were supposed to read it. I thought you said the last outro is you. It is me. So thank you. Oh, I'm supposed to say thank you, Shirley, which I did. This is a finely oiled machine, as you can tell. We want to thank actors Nadine Malouf, which I did already, but we'll thank again. And Christian Berea, play the leads in the play Yerma. It's presented by the Huntington Theater Company at the Calderwood Pavilion at the Boston Center for the Arts. It's on stage through Sunday. I would not miss it. It's great. Great to meet you both. We really appreciate your time. Thank you for listening to another edition of Boston Public Radio. Please tune in Monday for our political roundup. Charlie Sennett on the latest global headlines. And the Reverends Irene Monroe and Emmett Price will be here for a special uh, All Revved Up. Our crew is Chelsea Mers, Amanda McGowan, Arjun Singh, Zoe Matthews, Hannah Ubeli, and our engineer is John LeClaw Parker. Our on-site engineer is Miles Smith. Special thanks to the folks at the Newsfeed Cafe. Thank you all for coming. We appreciate it. Have a wonderful weekend and all things. And Shirley, you really were great. It's great to see you. We'll be oh, reading you next week me. in the Boston yes, Globe. Yes. Have a wonderful weekend, everybody. Thanks for tuning in.